This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, your podcast for all things digital transformation and the podcast that helps you reach the third stage of digital transformation success. Excited to have you all here today. Excited for a guest co-host today. Uh, Parisa and Kyler are both on holiday this week for this episode, so it gave us an opportunity to have a past guest on as a repeat guest now and also as our co-host today. So wanted to invite or, or introduce Marcus Harris. Marcus, thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, no, my pleasure. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to be here today. I'm glad you asked me and we've got some good topics. So I'm excited to get right into it. Yeah, your your uh, past episodes that you've been on have been a hit and uh, people tend to ask more follow up questions. It tends to lead to a lot more discussion. So I figured it'd be good to have you have you back on again and uh, have you on as a host, too. So thanks for thanks for being here. So yeah, absolutely. maybe just real quick before we do an introduction into your background, uh, just give give the listeners here an overview of what we're going to cover today. Um, first of all, we're going to obviously have Marcus here throughout the show. In this first segment, we're going to talk a bit about uh, some of the recent lawsuits uh, in the industry, in the digital transformation industry, and just some of the trends that he's seeing from a, from an attorney's perspective. And then later in the show, we're going to have Brian Potts on the show, and he's going to talk about uh, some of the nuances of choosing uh, software vendors and system integrators, and in particular, how to overcome the bias that you get in that whole evaluation process and your planning process. and everything that goes into that. So we'll talk a lot about how to manage vendors and how to deal with the bias that's in the uh, industry and inherent in the industry. And then after Brian, we'll, we'll have Marcus back on and we're going to talk more about contracts and things you can do upfront early in the transformation cycle to sort of protect yourself against some of the things that we'll talk about here today. So a lot of jam packed stuff we're going to cover today. So I appreciate everyone, everyone joining today. So before we jump in and, and we start into the conversation about failures and just general trends along those lines in the industry, Marcus, maybe tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into this crazy world of being an attorney for uh, digital transformation failures. Yeah, no, well, so I, I work at a law firm called Taft, Statinius and, and Hollister, and I'm a partner here and I'm a co-chair, an internal co-chair of our software and intellectual property licensing practice, which really dovetails nicely into drafting and negotiating all these types of you know, software implementation and software licensing agreements. And I've been doing it for uh, almost 20 years now. Um, and I've done it on both sides of the house, representing customers, licensees, as well as working um, in-house at SAP and working um, also in-house at Infor um, uh, in their legal and contracts departments. Um, and so, you know, which for me, and I think the value that we really bring to the table as a, as a group and me personally in my practice with that type of experience is not only do you understand the, the issues that are, are you know, at the forefront of the contract negotiation process, but we also you know, deal on the ground essentially in court and in arbitration panels across the country with these, these ERP implementation failures. So 
you know, it's it's when we are negotiating contracts, it's not really in the abstract. I mean, we're negotiating them with with an eye toward having to defend or to litigate, you know, those contractual terms to get the best results for whoever we're representing, be it a, a large software vendor or integrator, or more often today, the actual customer. So that's that's the background in a nutshell, um, and I think it's 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 a, a little bit of a unique background, and I think you know the value proposition that we provide is is almost unmatched with, with any other you know, law firm that's out there. There's only a, a, a small handful of law, law firms that actually want to take this kind of work. Yeah, yeah. We, we do, a, as you know, we do a lot of expert witness work as, as a company, and that's how we met you years and years ago. But um, it, it does seem that other than you, I don't know any other attorneys that uh, actually have done repeat cases like this. So it's, it's interesting to have someone with a legal background as well as the you know, experience specifically in this space. That's pretty unique. Right. Yeah, it is. It is unique. Like I said, you know, it's it's a, it's a, it's a it's a well-rounded perspective that, that we leverage for our, for our, our customer base. Yeah. And when we later in the show, when we do our last segment, when we talk about contracts and stuff, I, I want to come back and build on or draw from your your experience and some of your perspectives, having been on the other side of, of actually working for a vendor um, internally as, as legal counsel for, for vendors and, and sort of get some of your perspectives there. But we'll we'll get to that later in the show. Uh, but before we. Um, get there, uh, I guess just to start, maybe let's talk about just in general, you know, I've, I've, I'm fascinated by lawsuits as well and failures because I, not because it's fun to watch the train wrecks necessarily, but because it's, you can learn so much from those, those failures and, and those challenges. And it's, it's just always some good lessons learned. And so I, I tend to watch like you, you know, when there's lawsuits and who's, who's involved and what software is involved and all that stuff. And it seems like recently there's been a few with, you know, state of Hawaii was one that, that um, I recently saw. Um, there's another one involving, uh, advanced lifts versus NetSuite is another one that was recently filed. So there, some of the recent cases that we've seen have been, for example, uh, state of Hawaii had a, has a recent lawsuit that they filed, uh, a company called advanced lifts versus NetSuite. That's another lawsuit that's recently been filed. The reason I bring this up is, you know, I'm curious as to what you see as far as trends in the, in the space of lawsuits or in the legal realm of transformation? Are you seeing more of them? Are they pretty steady? Are they declining? What, what are you seeing? Yeah, you know, interestingly enough is, you know, the, the state of, of Hawaii case is is a firm out of New York that I've actually co-counseled with, at least on one case. And um, the advanced lifts case is, is a, actually a firm based here in Chicago, which is where I am. And, uh, attorney, and it's one of the attorneys on that case is somebody I went to law school with. So, you know, the, the world is, is, is pretty small in this space and we kind of all, you know, are, are, are keen on what the others are doing. And, and like I said, there's not a lot of attorneys that do this. So we're all kind of watching these cases with bated breath to kind of see what the trends are. And, you know, I think back, you know, maybe five, six, seven years ago, you, you know, what would get the, the most coverage, and I think it still does, and rightly so, are these huge, just enormous failures, you know, from SAP and Oracle and, and, and to some extent even maybe Infor, you know, some of the larger companies. And I think you saw, you saw those primarily not because they failed more, but just because of the size of the deals and they were more spectacular. And I think certainly here at the state of Hawaii is kind of a spectacular failure with $30 million in damages being recovered by the state. You know, advanced lifts, I think, is, is, is probably a smaller case. But as far as, as trends, I mean, I think what we're seeing is kind of down, downstream software vendors are, or, or integrators um, are, are coming to the forefront now. And, and I think, you know, 
they're being sued more often um, or we're hearing about them more. So certainly NetSuite is part of Oracle, but you know, the NetSuite package in and of itself isn't, isn't you know, the same level as, say, the, the main Oracle product and you're not spending as much money on it. And, I, you know, the, the trend is then, you know, these, these systems, these kind of mid-market systems or smaller systems are sold to the middle market, to small business, small, medium-sized businesses as, you know, something that's kind of a cure-all and something that's easy to get involved in, and the way they structure the contracts, they certainly make them look like that, right? It's a you know maybe a two-page business-friendly agreement that doesn't look like it's that complicated, but the way they get there is that they have the, all these internal references to other documents on URLs that can change at any time. So that's from a contract from a contractual standpoint, that's something we see. From the failure standpoint, I mean, it's really um, to some extent a continuation of things that we've seen before, but with maybe a little bit of a different flavor. It's it's really you know, a lot of these cloud-based systems not really being true cloud systems, right? They're kind of fake cloud. Um, or alternatively, they're not really ready for prime time. You know, they've got serious performance issues with, you know, whether it's the speed of the transactions that they can process. You know, there's going to be a substantive difference between a, an on-premise solution and a, and a cloud solution to, you know, misrepresentations by the sales team where they oversell the system, telling you it's scalable and endlessly customizable when in fact it's not. And then it's it's really, you know, people issues where the the customer doesn't put the right provisions within the contract to manage the process. And you've got, you know, the 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 wolf garden, the hen house, where you know their endless hours are being spent on customizations that may not necessarily be appropriate. You know, I've got one case now where, you know, we, we get into the documents in these cases, right? And you see emails like, wow, so we, we had the client spend thousands of dollars on a customization that would have, that, that they didn't need because it was in the base functionality, it just required another click. Like, what are we, you know, what are we selling? And, you know, th those are the types of things that result in massive cost overruns and, and ultimately failures because, you know, you're outside of scope, you're outside of budget. And this thing is a behemoth that, that isn't what you contracted for. And it's a highly customized system where, you know, they, they've in fact used, you know, the project as a training ground for, you know, a revolving door of, of inexperienced consultants. So, I mean, that's that's kind of the background that that, that, that I'm seeing right now, the, you know, the general trends. Yeah, that's a, that's a, similar to what I've seen too, as far as the, some of those misrepresentations and, you know, maybe taking a step further, sort of unpacking that a bit. One thing I've noticed in the space, which I find fascinating, but but very unhealthy, is the fact that you get these software vendors who have, you know, in some cases for some of these bigger vendors, they have thousands or tens of thousands of employees, right? And they're all they're all beating to the same drum. They're all delivering the same message. They're all drinking the Kool Aid, right? And they're they're talking about how great the software is and how you know it's the best thing since sliced bread. And so when you reach out to a vendor, that's the bias or the response you tend to get. And it's hard to justify or, or to argue with it because you have so many people telling you the same thing. And, and yet on top of that, that not only do you have sales reps telling you one thing, but then you look to system integrators who are in cahoots with the vendors and you look to industry analysts who are getting paid by the software vendors to put out reports and magic quadrants and stuff like that. And so you look around and you say, wow, the software must be the best thing since sliced bread. Everyone's saying it is, so it must be. And so it's easy to fall into that trap and then you get into it. And then, you know, here we are, we're talking to an attorney about you know, how we failed and we, we want to get some sort of recovery from that. Well, and I think, you know, that's that's in some ways one of the industry's dirty little secrets, right, is that you don't understand as a customer coming into this. I mean, you think of the life cycle of a, 
of an ERP system, of a legacy uh, on-premise system. You know, it's 15, 20, in some cases, I've seen 30 years a, custom, a customer's been on that system. They don't, they don't have the experience in evaluating these systems. And, you know, you don't understand how intertwined everybody really is. You know, just to your point, you know, you've got, you know, let's, let's just say NetSuite, for example. You've got, you know, the, the sales reps who are, who are selling you all the sizzle and, and, and leave out all the steak, right? And you don't, you're not concerned about it because you're going to integrators that they recommend and they're telling you, well, this is the best system. We can integrate it quickly and efficiently. You know, we've done it many, many times before for people in your industry. You, you know, you go look at analysts, Magic Cop Quadrants and whatnot, you know, and, and they're being paid to, to promote the software too. I mean, you almost don't have a chance. You know what I mean? And I think you know, one of one of the things that we always recommend that our clients do when they're doing evaluations is certainly, you know, you, you got to look at more than one system, right? And if you're trying to do this on your own, I think you're really doing yourself a disservice. As as a law firm, that's not really our specialty. We can't we can't tell you what software is really going to be, you know, better for, for your particular business processes or not. We can look at terms and conditions of a contract, represent you in court. I think for that kind of advice, you've got to go to a specialized consultant that understands, you know, what your business processes are through some sort of a discovery process and then can fit that into, you know, these different buckets of different products because they've seen it before. And, you know, that's where software selection consultants, benchmarking and that kind of thing come into play. And, you know, you've got to ask the right questions. Is is the selection consultant that I'm, you know, using, are, are they objective, you know, or are they bot? Because, you know, if, if, if they're being paid in the back door, you're not getting objective advice, and that's a big problem. It is, and you know, it's it's crazy that you know. I think that's actually the even worst part of the industry. At least with a software vendor, you you can see why they'd be biased because they're trying to sell their software. But when you get a consultant who alleges to be independent, uh, but you know they have a bias either because they are getting some sort of financial kickback, or what's even more common is they they just only know one or two systems because that's just where they grew up or whatever, and so it's more of a knowledge gap than anything. But I actually had a few years ago, interesting story, a consultant who works for, a, uh, it's actually one of our competitors. It's a, a smaller niche, you know, allegedly independent consulting firm. And they wanted a partner. And then they started talking about how they're they're going to uh, form an alliance with one of the software vendors, but still position themselves as an independent consultant. But they were going to get, um, you know, some sort of partnership referral program from uh, some of the software vendors. And I was like, the minute you start doing that, you're not, un- you're not unbiased. You're, you're looking out for how I can make money in this in this deal, too. So I think that's a that's a big problem that you point out. Yeah, it's a huge problem, and I think I think you know sometimes when you go to these consultants, the the, the software package you're going to get is predetermined by the by the consultant that you pick. You know what I mean? So it it really can be a challenge, and I think it's it's really incumbent on the customer to ask the right questions and and to to make sure they're getting the right kind of advice and to cut through this kind of veil of you know bias and, and lack of objectivity. You know, one one of the other things that that we see, and this is a common theme in in almost every failure that we that we get involved in, um, and that's really not documenting what your your key requirements are, you know, or, or not even really having understanding of what your business processes are, because having an understanding of how you conduct your business, then you can have an understanding of what the requirements are, and you've got to make a distinction between you know what's nice to have. What's what's a must-have, and you know just what 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 you know, what what we can get rid of, but you know wh- one of the the common threads in these failures is well you know 
we really needed the system to do A, B, and C, but well, you never you never even wrote it down, and you never you never told in any specific documented way. You never told the salespeople or the vendor that that's what you needed, and then now you're surprised that it, 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 you know after implementation, it doesn't contain that piece of functionality that you think is so critical to your business. It's hard to rectify that, right? And it, it, it's hard to reconcile it rather because. You know, if, if I got to go into court and say, well, this was the one thing that they needed to, to run their business and the one thing that the software had to do, you know, the jury's going to say, well, where's the document that says it's so important? And that's what the vendor's going to do, too. So, you know, that, that's a pretty big trend that we see. And I think it's really kind of a byproduct of um, maybe unreasonable expectations. You, you think that the software is just going to do whatever you need it to do. Right. And you're being told that, too, to be fair. Um, and it's a byproduct of just the, 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 the ease with which these salespeople and these vendors kind of pitch the product, right? It's like, look, this isn't, this isn't on-premise anymore. You don't have to have a, team, a big IT team. You don't have to have software developers touching code. I mean, this is, you know, this is like Google Docs or Gmail. You, know, you just plug it in and flip a switch, and it's going to work. It, it, it's not that way at all. Right. No, it's very true in that, you know, the... Requirements comment is an interesting one as far as not documenting requirements. We see a lot of clients that after the fact, when they hire us to do help with the implementation in some way, we find that they, they verbally tell the sales guy or gal that, hey, we need it to do A, B, and C, but they don't write it down. They don't document it. And then the salesperson goes away, new delivery team shows up, and they end up having to repeat the same story again. And then the delivery team ends up breaking the bad news that, oh, actually, our software doesn't do that. Or what's even more common is, Yes, it does it, but it's going to be super painful and awkward for it to do that, or it just doesn't do it well, or we're going to have to customize it and create, you know, some sort of workaround for it. So it's not just a yes, no, it's sort of a, a, a gray area you've got to navigate, which is how well does the software do what you need it to do. Right, right. And, and actually going back to something that we mentioned a little bit before with the state of Hawaii case, and that was one of the key key issues in that case was was the issue of customizations, right? And it's, 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 you know, not documenting your business requirements. And then there's the handoff between the salespeople and the consultants or their knowledge transfer meeting. And because you didn't document it, you know, the salespeople don't remember that that was a requirement. And then you do find out, oh, it, it, it can do that, but it's going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars in customizations to get it to do that. You know, and, and the salespeople told you, don't worry about it. Our, you know, it's customizable, it's scalable, our software can do whatever you need it to do, it's that flexible, but, you know, nobody tells you, well, it's not going to do it elegantly, and it's not going to do it cheaply, and, you know, it, that that's a fundamental issue, and, and I mean, that definitely can lead yeah. to failure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we looking at the trends, or getting back to this whole concept of, of where the industry is headed and what you're seeing from a trends perspective, uh, you know, when I first started doing expert witness work, you know, 15 years ago, it seemed like most of the cases that I got involved with were either SAP or Oracle related, because those are the two biggest vendors out there. They deal with a lot of the bigger companies that if they fail, they've got a lot more to lose and they, they have the deep pockets to sue uh, some of the vendors. So it always seemed like it was either SAP or sometimes Oracle, but mostly SAP to a second, uh, to a lesser degree Oracle. But recently or more recently, more recently, it seems like it's not just those two big products. It's you know, we mentioned, or even though NetSuite's owned by Oracle, it is a standalone product. It's a smaller, you know, smaller system, if you will. Um, and then other, you know, types of niche players. It seems like, are you seeing that to where it's not just the big guys now that are having legal issues or, or failures? Or has it always been that way? And I just didn't, never saw the full sample. 
No, no, I, I think what you're seeing is unique and it's it's new. And so I, I think it definitely is a trend. You're right. Back in the old days, you know, it, it definitely was the big the big time software vendors, right? But now, I mean, we're seeing second tier and third tier software vendors, you know, subject to, to ERP failure litigation on a pretty regular basis. And I think it's actually at least even now in, in my practice, at least where we see that on a pretty consistent basis. So I think um, that's that's something you're going to see more of as, you know, more companies think that this is easy to adopt and, and the salespeople continue to push the ease of adoption and implementation. And because one of the selling points of, of on the cloud is, look, it's going to be cheaper. It's going to be way easier to implement. And, you know, it's you don't have to configure this as much because it's a it's a multi-tenant solution and everybody gets kind of the same thing. So, you know, it's 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 super simple to do when, in fact, that's just not really the case. I mean, I don't, I don't think that you know, absent, you know, some, some certain issues that, you know, net uh, uh, cloud solutions are, are necessarily, you know, that much easier to, to, to get right than, than the old on-premise yeah. solutions were. Yeah, I agree with that. It, I fully agree with that. And I know I, I'm pretty sure that there's at least one person listening to this podcast right now that works for one of those software vendors that strongly disagrees <laughs> about that comment. But I think if, if you just are totally objective and you look at this, you could argue that, I think the only thing you could really argue is that you can turn on the system faster. I mean, I could give you immediate access, or if I'm a sales rep, I could give you immediate access to my system, right? Because it's in the cloud and I don't need to install it. But beyond that, I mean, that's that's the easy part of an implementation is getting the access to the system. Now you're talking about trying to configure it. You're trying to train people on it. You're trying to get your processes to work within it. In fact, you could argue it's even more difficult to implement cloud because now you've got to change your processes more to fit the technology because it's not quite as adaptable as on-prem. Uh, from a change management perspective, same thing. You're forcing your people to change, and that's the that's the stuff that takes time and money. It's not the the technology piece. So I think when you look at the whole big picture like that, it actually you could argue, or I could I could make an argument that it's actually more difficult to implement cloud than than on premise. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that people overlook. That look, you know, just just because it's 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 cloud, you know, it's not easier, and and, and in fact, you know, on the back end, you know, the, the change management process is going to be so much more difficult because you can't replicate the processes that were in your, your legacy system, you know, and I think, you know, certainly there's, there's salespeople listening to this or vendors. Well, that's not the point, right? We're selling you a new system. And if your, if your goal is to simply replicate the, the way the, the old system worked in your new system, then you, you know, you're not understanding the value of the new system. And I think there's something to be said for that. But at the same time, I mean, if I've got to go on a system that, that, I can't. I can't really modify to suit my needs. I've got to change my needs, right? I've got to change the way I do business, and that's that's a tough nut to crack right there. Because I think you know one of the one of the key tenets of ERP failure is resistance to change. And if you can't get your people to buy in, you know, God help you, right? I mean, that's that's going to be a huge impediment to success. And it may not be a technical success, but but to be honest with you very rarely are these technical issues, right? That the lawsuits that we deal with, it's either the, the, the reason for failure, it's not because the software doesn't work. The software works in some way, shape or form. It does what it's supposed to do, but you know, it, it doesn't do it in the way that you need it for your business or it was fundamentally misrepresented or to get to where you need it functionally. Now you've got to, to, to substantively modify that code, spend hundreds of thousands on customizations, you know, and that's not, that's not a solution. And that's, you know, they don't, they're, they're never going to lead with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely true. 
And, you know, the other thing that drives me crazy about it, while we're talking about clouds and expectation set or cloud systems and expectation setting is when cloud providers come out and say, you're going to save money. Um, and I, it reminds me of, this was probably five or six years ago, I was in front of a client who was getting a, a sales pitch from one of the cloud providers. And they were talking about how you're going to save all this money. You know, here's all the ways you're going to save money. And the client actually unpacked it. And we, we walked through with the client, okay, with the vendor there. And we said, okay, well, what are you spending on hosting or your internal infrastructure now? What are you spending on servers and maintenance and all that stuff? And when we added it up, it, it, it actually came out to uh, be slightly more expensive for cloud. And, but they kept pointing to those savings saying, but you're saving all this money over here. And we, you know, we had to point out, well, yeah, but your cost is higher. <laughs> We're just shifting the money from internal cost over to you, the vendor. It's not really saving us money. You're making more money. But we're not we're not saving any in the long term. In fact, if you look out for most cases we're involved with most projects, if you look out five to seven years plus, you're going to pay more for cloud just because that subscription fee never goes away, and it's a lot like, a lot like leasing a car versus buying one. It's exactly what it's like, and no, you know, again, nobody tells you that, right? I mean, the perception is, hey, this is easy, this is less expensive. It's I'm not going to need you know a team of internal IT staff to manage this thing, and it's just it's really not the case, you know. I mean, you know, it's called you know annual recurring revenue because you know their goal the the software vendor's goal is to sell you you know on a on a long-term contract term you know and lock you in so that they've got that annual recurring revenue the the the, the longer the term for them the better off they are and you know i think i think there's there's substantive issues with that because you know the the goal of these contracts really is for you as a customer get, to get all the indicia of ownership um, with respect to that software product so that you have the flexibility to work work with it in a way that meets your needs and, and not have to, to, to work with it in a way that meets the vendor's needs. And those needs can be, you know, intellectual property needs, ownership needs, and those are legitimate. But fundamentally, above all else, it's a revenue need, right? It's a need to make money. And, you know, that contract is going to be structured to give you the least amount of flexibility that you can. And I think it's even, it's more prominent in, in the cloud world than it is in the, in the on-premise world. So I, I don't think that anybody that just says blindly, well, you know, it's 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 cloud, so it's it's easier to implement, it's faster to implement, and it's cheaper over the long term. It's not, right? I mean, it, there's there's caveats and there's nuances to that. Like, I mean, I think you, you mentioned one just a little bit ago. Certainly, it's easier to turn on, right? It's easier to get access to that system. But in every other way, you know, I mean, it's kind of a wash. Yeah, yeah. We have, we have a client that we recently started working with. It's a it's a big company. It's a global company, and they recently just implemented SAP and, and the IT, uh, the, the CIO's comment to me was that they now, now when they look at their total IT budget, over half of their IT budget annually is going directly to SAP for the subscription licenses. And that's, that's insane. And, it, you know, so what they're trying to do now, and the reason they hired us is to try and untangle the footprint or, or lessen the SAP footprint and to get out of some of that um, commitment that they have every year, because it's just, it's crushing them, you know, that, that annual subscription fee. And a lot of companies just don't, they don't think ahead to you know what is this cost structure really going to look like when we're when we're through this. Yeah, I, I, and I think that's that's a huge a huge risk and a huge liability potentially, right? It's got to be mitigated on the front end. Um, what about um, so when when we look at the um, the biggest most common mistakes that companies make or project teams make that lead to failure? And I think you've you've alluded to a couple things here, you know, with business requirements gathering and realistic expectations, but. What, how would you summarize the the biggest mistakes that companies make that most commonly lead them to failure? Yeah, I mean, there, there's so there's so many, but I think to kind of just 
you know, make it easy to talk about. You know, one of, one of the low-hanging fruits in this area really is spending the upfront time and using that contract negotiation process and the resulting contract as a tool to manage not only your relationship with the vendor and your ability to use the software, but to manage the implementation project as well. You know, and and you know whether that's whether you're you're, you're it's an all-in-one kind of solution where it's you know, you're using let's say you know SAP and SAP Consulting, or you're 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 licensing SAP but you're you're using Capgemini to implement it. Whatever the situation is, the goal should be on the front end to use that contract as a tool to manage the relationship and to mitigate risk. And part of that is going back to some of the things that I said early on. You know, you've got to document a process by which that software is going to be implemented. And and I think the the, the mistake that I see, and this just happened the other day, you know, you, you, we get a new client that comes in a week before the quarter end and they want, you know, a multi-million dollar ne- deal negotiated in a couple of days. It just, it's impossible to do. You know, I think if you're spending, you know, a million dollars on software a year for three to four years, you've got to spend a reasonable amount of money on an attorney review to make sure that, that the risk is mitigated in that contract and that, you know, you've got at least a dog in the fight if you've got to enforce it or litigate it. it, it, it you know, that that to me is is not understanding the complexity of, of the relationship that you're going to have, not understanding how critical it is to the overall success of your business. Um, those types of things, I think, are, are at the forefront of, of the, the problems that we see. And it just creates all sorts of havoc if, if we have to enforce that contract. If you've got a contract that wasn't negotiated properly on the front end, it really causes substantive issues for us trying to enforce it to, to, to the customer's benefit against the vendor in court. You know, we just don't have any kind of real remedy. Uh, you know, the, the standard remedies in those contracts from a damages perspective or something like, you know, you get six months, your, your monetary recovery is limited to the, the amount of money that you paid to them in the six months prior to the issue giving rise to the breach, okay? So what that means in common everyday terms is, you, you know, six take a six-month look backward to the time that you, you rose the issue with them, that, that, you know, why the software is problematic. That's, that's the universe of, of money that you get, unless we can use some fancy footwork, you know? And you can, you can modify that on the front end when you're negotiating the contract. You never have as much leverage as you do before you sign, right? I mean, after you sign, you're not gonna have any kind of leverage at all. Um, so you know, you, you you've got to got to use it. I think just the, the biggest risk is not taking advantage of the contract negotiation process, not using the contract as a, as a tool to mitigate risk and manage the relationship, and just not not putting the time and effort into reviewing these these documents. And that goes to documenting your business processes, documenting your requirements, and then having unreasonable expectations as to what the software is going to do for you. Right. Yeah, it's a great point. Now, now, what about? Um organizations that have transformations or project teams that are going off track and the, the risks are starting to accumulate and now you're starting to have problems. What, what do you do at that point? Because it, you know, it, it, in some ways you think, well, I'm already so far into it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to completely back out or, you know, rip out all the progress we've made. But it, on the other side, you may not know what to do. You may not know how to, how to adjust. What, what sort of recommendations at a high level do you typically recommend when a company's in trouble or seeing things go off track? Yeah. Well, I, I can I can give you two off the top of my head here that are just at the forefront. And I think the first thing I would recommend to any client is do whatever you need to do to get that software project right-sided. Spend spend a reasonable amount of money, put the time in, delay the project, because 
if if it fails outright, you're in a whole world of hurt, right? You've got to rip that system out. You've got to replace it with a new system. So you've got a whole new implementation timeline that you're going to be dealing with. It, not 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 even accounting for you know, the whole selection process and review and analysis on the front end for the new the new system. So, and then you potentially have a lawsuit on your hands. You know what I mean? So you're looking at doubling or tripling the cost of, of, of your original outlay just to replace and try to get some recovery. Um, and success isn't guaranteed on other front. So I think, you know, I'd rather, you know, deal with, with, with the devil that I know than the one that I don't, you know, and, and just spend the amount of money that needs to get that thing right-sided so that you don't have to deal with a new system and, and dealing with attorneys. Because, you know, the, the toll that, that digital transformation takes on your employees is, is enormous. You know, change management issues are real. And, you know, employee morale is, is hard to, to, to right side in and of itself. So that's one thing. Um, and the other thing is, is, is really, um, you know, try to minimize and streamline that implementation as much as you can, right? That, that would be my advice. So if, if you're, you're looking at, you know, 55 customizations, really think about what you need and, and, and you know, let, let's, let's get that down to some kind of a manageable number that is going to get that software to, to work reasonably for you to address your core business requirements. And then let's, let's figure out what we need to do once you're, once you're up and running, you know, it, it really be then, you know, the advice is get, get that, that project streamlined as much as you can. And, and to, to, you know, it, it still kind of rolls up and falls back on each other because the goal is, you know, get, get a functioning system and do what it takes to get it going. Right. But I think the, the way to do that is cut, cut the, the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. Yeah. And it, your first point about um, doing what you need to do to make your project successful, I think it's a great sort of closing point for, for this segment, which is, you know, organizations that are going through this, ultimately they have to own it and they have to do what's right for their organization. And what ends up happening is, again, I think that part of this is lack of knowledge on the, on the implementing company side. They don't know, they don't do this every day. They don't know what it should look like, what risks are normal, what, you know, activities on a project are normal versus not. But then on the flip side, you get the system integrators and the vendors who put enormous pressure on you to no, don't stop, don't take a timeout, don't question our resources, or don't, you know, don't don't pause the project because you might lose all of our resources. They might get staffed on other projects, and the, and the system integrators create this fear and this false sense of authority, I guess you will, that you know you can't do what you need to do, and these companies end up hamstrung because they just don't know any better. So I, I think it's it is important, and if you don't feel like it's a right situation, I think it's important to reach out to people like you or I or other, you know, unbiased third parties that can help navigate that sort of situation. Yeah, well, you know, what, one of the lines that, that I always use when I'm addressing a jury or a judge in these cases is, you know, give me more money, give me more time, and give me more patience. That That's the mantra of, of these guys, you know, and, and you're right. If you're, if you're not, if you don't have an understanding that you can actually push back and manage that process yourself, that's, that's, that's what you're going to be faced with, right? Give me more time, you have more patience, and above all, give me more money, and we'll get this thing where it needs to be. Um, and sometimes you got to pump the brakes and just say, "Look, you know, let's let's reevaluate, reassess, and, and narrow the scope of this thing so we can get it on, on track." Yeah. So I've got one more bonus, one last bonus question for you that I didn't plan on asking you, but it just occurred to me as we were talking. But what do you think? What's your knee-jerk reaction to the thought of this industry someday being regulated by the government? Do you think that's a? Do you think that would help? Do you think that is is something that may happen, whether you like it or not? Do you, do you, because it does feel in some ways like it's. There's a, there's a, there's a peer in the industry, another consultant that I need to give credit to. This is not my term, but he always refers to this industry as the wild, wild west. It's just a bunch of people out there selling software, doing whatever the 
heck they want with no real accountability. And so it feels like a industry that's ripe for some sort of regulation. But what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that would be a step in the right direction. And I think, you know, I'm not a fan of government regulation necessarily, but I think to have some sort of some sort of standards and, you know, education programs for people that are involved in this, people that are on the ground, you know, there's, there's certainly, you know, certifications on the project management side, what is it, PMP, and you know, there's others like that. But really, you know, and you and I were talking before we started, you know, we, we run into this on a pretty regular basis where you've got, you know, brand new salespeople that are incented by commission that that don't really care what the business requirements are of the customer. They just want to make their numbers and they're willing to say within reason, you know, whatever they need to say to make the sale. And I think that's really problematic. I think if you can hire people that have gone through some sort of a certification process that understand the technology, that understand the particular industry that they're selling to, that would really go a, a long way to, to, to minimizing kind of the Wild West aspect of this, at least in my view. Yeah, yeah, agreed. It seems like something needs to be done. But in the meantime, you know, organizations, to your point, organizations need to take control and ownership of these projects and, you know, get the help from people like you up front rather than waiting until they need to hire you for a lawsuit, which I've heard you say before that hiring you later is a lot more expensive than hiring you early in the process. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We say early early legal advice is not expensive or it's certainly not near as expensive as, as uh, legal advice that, that you need when you're in the thick of it, you know? So, you know, I mean, I think, you know, spending, you know, whatever percentage of your, of your overall software spend on contract negotiation and contract review is going to pay dividends because, you know, in some ways it's like insurance, you, you know, you're, you're, you don't, you may, you may avoid a lawsuit and you may not even realize you avoided one because you've got such a good contract in place, but that's, that's really the goal. Right. Yeah. Well, good. Well, that's uh, scary stuff in some ways, but I think it's a scary reality. We just have to be, you have to get comfortable with. And so I, I think it's helpful to have that discussion. And uh, we're going to take a quick break and have Brian Potts on the show. Um, and he's going to talk a little bit more along these same lines, but getting more into how to navigate some of the bias in the industry. So how do you, how do you get to the real answer of what the, you know, what the right software is for your organization or whether or not a system integrator is the right fit and what are the things you should be looking for? So we're going to take a non-legal perspective when we have Brian back on the show. And then uh, we're going to pick up this conversation with you later on. I want to uh, come back and ask you some more questions about the whole upfront contractual process and the things you can do upfront to make sure you avoid some of the challenges and failure points that we just talked about. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with our special guest co-host today, Marcus Harris. And uh, we're going to have Marcus back uh, for more questions and more, more legal discussion here. 
uh, later in the show. But in the meantime, before then, I want to invite our next guest on the show, which is uh, Brian Potts, who is the chief client officer and managing partner of Third Stage Consulting. So Brian, someone that I've worked with for a long time, well before Third Stage, he and I actually went to college together, uh, worked at our previous venture together, and now now Third Stage. And wanted to have Brian back on the show today to specifically talk about bias in the industry and how to cut through that bias and how to navigate the bias, how to get to the real right answers for your organization. And so, uh, especially in the spirit of here in the United States, at least, at the time we're, we're recording this podcast, we're right in the middle of the holiday season that celebrates independence and that sort of thing. So I, I feel like it was a good topic to sort of coincide with the whole theme of independence and really allowing organizations or, or giving organizations advice on how they could be more independent and more self-sufficient and, and navigating this, this whole journey that they're going through. So with that being said, uh, Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be back. Yeah. It's been been uh, a few months since we, we've had one of these uh, with you. So maybe just real quickly, give a little bit of background of who you are and where you came from and all that good stuff. <laughs> not, well, not going all the way back to or anything. Maybe just start with adulthood and <laughs> what you've done. Fair enough. Career. <laughs> no, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Chief Client Officer with Third Stage Consulting. My background is in, you know, looking at the, from an agnostic perspective, looking at what it takes to trans transfer from current state to new state with technology. Uh, there's a lot that goes into that, uh, the selection, digital strategy, understanding, and then into the actual transformation itself of, of implementation, handling business processes, organizational change, people, data. Um, and really my area of interest is identifying the needs up front and making sure that they're realized in the end. It's sometimes easy to say, here's what we want to do, here's what we need to do. But when you actually go to do it, it's a different story. So. That's what I like yeah. talking about. Good, good stuff. Yeah, and you see a lot of this every every day, both with potential clients, with existing clients, and also interacting with vendors every day. So it's a, a unique perspective that that you have and, and our team has as well. Um, so just to start, and again, uh, as as I'm jumping in here with a few questions, I encourage the audience to please ask whatever questions you have, especially as we start to get into some of these threads and different topics here. I have a few questions to get the conversation going, but would love to hear your feedback from the audience here. Again, whether you're listening on LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, or Crowdcast, I'm going to be watching all the platforms for questions and comments. So I'd love to get your feedback there. But just to start, let's talk about this whole concept of software vendor biases, You know, just in general, whether you're talking to a software vendor to find out what the capabilities of the software are, and or if you're talking to an implementer of our system integrator to find out you know, how the software might work or um, how the, the implementation may look. When a company is going through a transformation and then trying to plan for a digital transformation, why, why, why is this bias a big deal? Or what are some of the you know, high level challenges that organizations face as it relates to that bias? Yeah, with bias, I think you want to look at what's driving bias. So two two angles to look at. One, you know, when you're talking to software vendors, implementers, somebody who's got something to take out of it, there's a financial bias. What's leading them to their beliefs? And they then inherently believe that belief create a bias because it benefits them personally. The the other type of bias is, um, is from... Um, lack of knowledge. Uh, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Therefore, you're creating bias based on uncertainties, unknowns. Kind of the go-to, what you Google, you you that becomes your first impression, and that all of a sudden is your bias. So there's bias with familiarity. 
uh, when when you don't know any better. And that's why we see a lot of internal bias companies that are looking to move from a new from to a new software from an, a legacy platform. A lot of people are stuck to that legacy platform because they know it, they're comfortable with it. The idea of change is scary. So that creates a bias where we don't necessarily want to change regardless of what the new solution is or could bring. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I think a lot of a lot of people, when they hear the word bias or, you know, how do I, how do I become more objective or get a, get a more objective input into my evaluation of software vendors or implementers, whatever it is, I think people assume it's all external bias, but it, you bring up a really good point that that internal bias is a big deal too. Um, just either through the lack of knowledge or a lot of times it seems like project teams that we work with are drinking the vendor Kool-Aid, so to speak. So they, they read something on the website or a sales rep from a vendor tells them something and they take it as sort of the holy grail of truth. And then that becomes their, their own bias internally. So you kind of have to watch for that as well. Yeah. And that's it. That's an, an, you could get into the whole psychological concept of bias, but it, you know, it starts, think of it, it starts as, as young for those that have kids, you are the center of bias for a certain number of years. They, you know, whatever you as a parent says is golden. That is the truth. Then it becomes teachers and then it grows. And we, we get used to that idea of bias and what certain, you know, all of a sudden it's not the parents and it shifts, but we get locked into what we believe is the source of truth. And that's, that creates our bias. So keep that in mind as we're navigating where we're getting information from and, you know, who's countering with different perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. I had an example of that just yesterday. We were talking to a, a potential client and they're going through an SAP or they're getting ready to start an SAP upgrade. So they're using uh, ECC, which is an old legacy product of SAP. And they're, they're looking to upgrade to S4 HANA, which is the um, just the newer platform that they're operating on. And they're going to move to S4 HANA cloud. And, and the whole uh, one of the internal team members was saying how, it's it's just a lift and shift. The code's all the same. The functionality is all exactly the same. We're just moving from ECC to S4 HANA, so it should be a pretty easy implementation. And I said, well, where do, where do you get that information? He said, oh, well, SAP told me. And so we had to, had to kind of back, unbrainwash him a bit and say, well, that's not at all true. <laughs> None of what you just said is true. So we have to sort of dispel some of those those understandings or misunderstandings. So I, I think it's a a good point, but it, it's amazing how many people just sort of take it at face value and assume it's true if a, if a sales rep tells you uh, something. Um, one thing that I'll just mention that we already have some comments and questions coming in, which is great. So keep keep them coming. But um, I was watching, I'm watching all the platforms here and over on YouTube, Scott uh, asks, or actually has a comment, which ties directly into what we we're just talking about here. And that is, uh, he says, vendors outride, vendors outride lied to me during our search for an ERP. It was difficult to pick out when they would yada, yada, yada over things because they can't do something. Um, and then he, he kind of agrees with what we're saying here as far as uh, the internal bias. So we already have one uh, live participant who uh, has, can relate to this, unfortunately, but it is a very common uh, dynamic. What are some of the things that you, you find that software vendors, whether it's an ERP vendor or CRM, HCM or whatever, sure. software vendors... Um, I don't want to say what do they lie about, but what are what are the biases that they impose on organizations that can be misleading or create confusion in the purchasing process? Well, uh, the big one is that we can do everything. Um, you know, one thing we throw caution to is when your when your vendor says you know checks yes everything says no problem yes 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 you need to question because that's never the case. There's always some gap. And the goal during procurement is to understand that gap. It's okay to have a gap. You need to know how to fill it. Well, I think what a lot of what drives that is 
again, it goes back to what we talked about earlier, the two, two constraints uh, that on called software sales people. The first is that they're, they're financially incented to say yes, uh, to get you as a client, regardless, you know, if there's any way you can swing a yes, even if it's a sort of, you're going to swing a yes because it helps you financially. The other is the training that they receive. I mean, it's, it's intentionally this way is that we have the best software other. You are on the number one team on the globe from a software perspective. Nothing can beat us. Here's why. That's the sales. That's the internal sales message that goes to the, the sales group that then gets transferred externally. So we're just carrying multiple versions of this is the best software ever. We can do everything that becomes believed embedded because that's the, the source of truth that they, they have to go by. Um, yeah. Sometimes you get a slightly different, you know, it's, it's salespeople can, you can sometimes pick it out when they've been across a number of vendors, you know, you can kind of catch them off guard sometimes if they've sold, you know, multiple types of software, but especially those that are in their first software environment, they just don't know any better. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of what, what they're hearing from the sales vendors or what they want to hear, you know, cause that's, that's the answer we all want to hear is it's going to be easy. It's not that much risk. It's not going to cost you that much. You're going to be so much better off with our software. I mean, that is what we're all looking for. So that it's understandable that you're sort of, you're sort of looking for that answer. And, you know, when they give it to you, it's easy to believe if you don't know any better. And one of the other things too, that um, I think is worth noting, you, you sort of touched on this, but maybe it's worth unpacking a bit more directly is that, um, you know, you have the software vendors who are compensated for saying yes and pointing out the strengths of the product. But then you also have an entire ecosystem of bias that's built around that. So you have a sales rep that's, yes, they're telling you, yeah, yeah, yeah our software is great. It can do A, B, and C. We're the best thing since sliced bread. But then the, the real problem, I think, is not just that, because at least in that case, you kind of know and expect that person to be biased and they're a sales rep and they're telling you what you want to hear. Um, it, it's, it's still sort of easy to fall into the trap of believing everything at face value, but at least, you know, you kind of expect, you know, some, some bias there, but I think the even more dangerous part of it is when you start to look at like industry analysts and, and the system integrators who are third parties, but they're all part of that same machine. They're all getting paid and supported by the vendor. So, you know, these vendors like SAP Oracle and those guys, they spend tons of money paying Gartner and Forrester and those guys to put out the magic quadrants and all the stuff that tells you how awesome their, their software is. So I think that's another thing too, is, you know, it's easy to say, well, the sales guy told me this and I just validated it by going over to Gartner and looking at the magic quadrant. So it has to be true, but behind it all is a vendor bias. That's being putting a lot of money into that message that you're not. I, lo I, lo I love that example. Cause I run into that all the time, <clears throat> you know, talking to software vendors, we are here in the quadrant. So understand how quadrants are made. Quadrants are bought. There's a quadrant for anything that you want there to be a quadrant for. They're created every day. They're rearranged. They're, you know, there there's certainly some truth to them, but only to the degree that vendors are paying for their product to be in a certain spot. You have to bring in some comparable products, but it's a it's a creation based on dollars. Um, and there's quadrants for literally everything. Any software vendor can have find themselves at some top angle of a quadrant. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's always fascinating. Some of the most random quadrants that are out there, you know, the, you know, where the, we're in the top right corner of the magic quadrant for business intelligent providers that focus on midsize manufacturing among all software vendors based in Pittsburgh. You know, it's like <laughs> it's something very specific that only you, that one. 
<laughs> well, I'm exaggerating, but <laughs> obviously, but there it is. That is sort of how it works is you have all these different quadrants that are being commissioned. And it's not just Gardner. I don't want to pick on them too much, but yeah. Forrester, the other analyst, um, you know, the system integrators certainly are biased because they're, they're trying to sell software because they make money on the commission of the, the licenses they, they help sell as well as the services to go along with it. So, um, yeah, that's, that's an important point as well. Um, so let's shift gears, um, and look at just a little bit or, or not shifting gears so much, but looking at one other specific thread within the, um, the whole concept of bias here, and that is with, with system integrators. So, um, but first of all, let's talk about what options organizations have when they're choosing an implementation partner. So, yeah, it, so a good consultant answer to that is it depends, but I understand that there's a whole range of availability for system in implementation. In some cases, you've got the vendor direct. Now, sometimes, you know, look at the cases of the larger players, SAP, Oracle, they'll only work with certain size or verticals that they want to put focus on. Um, and this is always shifting as well. Uh, Microsoft doesn't do much of their own work, if any. They'll shift everything to a reseller group. So the second outside of the software vendor where you've, you're working directly with the manufacturer of the software, you've got the, the value-added resellers. Those are ones that can resell the license and implement the software. They've got a license agreement with the software vendor to basically facilitate sales and implementation of their product. Um, sometimes in that, the, the value in some of those is sometimes they'll bring a, a that true concept of value add where they're building their own IP or capability on top of the, the core software package. So you look you look for those in cases of verticals where you need specific functionality that's built in 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 addition to the base software package. Then you've got the system implementer arena, which is um, they may not sell the software, but they're 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 contracted to implement the software and maintain it. So uh, you, you, in some cases you can buy the software from the, the manufacturer and implement it through another group. Sometimes it's the same group. Uh, a lot of times, you know, resellers and system implementers will represent multiple packages. Sometimes they're dedicated, but a lot of times they'll have, you look at the, the, the top accounting firms, for example, they'll, they'll have four or five of the big players that they implement. Um, and you, the, well, that's a whole nother issue getting to, to bias when you're when you're when you're going through a software evaluation is they're going to be led to one of the products they support. Um, the, the other alternative that you've got is to try and do it yourself and bring in 1099s and certified resources. It's sometimes difficult to navigate, but anymore, uh, it, it's so hard to find system integrators that have resource availability that might be an option. Uh, you can get somebody dedicated, bring them on staff. You've got their full attention. You do need to make sure that they've got the capabilities of certification to handle the software, but uh, there's some option to build your own uh, team essentially. Yeah. And it's, it's a great point and it's not uh, mutually exclusive. I mean, it's not like you have to pick one of those options. I mean, you could do a hybrid where you have a mm -hmm. core system integrator, or you augment it with some 1099 contractors or whatever the case may be. Um, but I think a lot of, again, getting back to this whole bias concept, the system integrators will tell you that is a terrible idea. You should not bring in independent consultants. You should not bring in your own resources. You shouldn't be doing this yourself. And some of that is partially true. I mean, you do need the outside expertise and people that do this for a living, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it all needs to come from the system integrator. It doesn't mean that you can't have other resources that you bring in from the outside. 
Um, you could hire your own people, you know, to be, to be on your staff too, as full-time employees. That's another option. So I think it's important for organizations to not be scared by the scare tactic of don't hire anyone but us to do the, to do the work, because that is, I think system integrators are very protective about their, their turf, you know, like this is our project. We're going to bring all the resources. You can't bring in your people and, you know, intermingle with our team. Yeah. And, and be ready for the liability discussion when, when you talk about that, because they're going to say, oh, well, we're, then we're not liable for anything. That's not true. Right. Um, and just push that aside. And you, you do want to look at where responsibilities lie, but you do have options. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Um, yeah. Thanks. That's a, that's a good overview of the different types of implementers, implementation options. And I think a lot of times people get the terminology can get confusing too. a system integrator, VAR, implementer vendor, you know, what, what do all those terms mean? I think the key there is, you know, you, you have options, it's somewhat interchangeable, but as you mentioned, there's a, the VAR, you know, some of the VARs have their own IP or their own value add to the, to the product itself. Um, what about um, just shifting gears or kind of moving on to another related question, but why is choosing the right implementation partner or partners or resources in general? Why is that so important? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it, it, it's in, I'd, I'd go beyond that. It's, it's probably as, if not more important anymore than finding the right software, because this is the team that's going to implement the software. This is the team that needs to know your business, understand your business and tie the software to your business. Uh, and then there, that's the ideal of the group that is going to be your support ongoing. So this is your face to the software. Essentially you're buying a software, but the actual perception of the software is this integration group, this, uh, this team that's going to be supporting you. Um, so validating that and identifying that correctly is extremely important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, you know, there's technical competencies and capabilities you have to evaluate, but, you know, culturally you want to make sure it's the right fit too. Um, what, what about, you know, when you think about the, uh, the different types, different tiers of implementation partners, whether they're VARs or system integrators, you know, you have the the big guys, you have the the boutique smaller guys, you have the mid tier uh, providers. How would you just sort of summarize or generalize the the differences or the strengths and weaknesses between those you know major buckets of options? Yeah, I mean, the, with the larger system implementers, it's it's easier to get to you know get overrun on a project. Um, they're they tend to be more expensive. Um, <clears throat> you know, possibly giving you more than you need. The, the, the benefit of them is they tend to have fairly structured methodologies and they tend to have better access in some cases to, to resources. One thing I do want to comment on resources before I go on is understand right now that there's extreme limitations globally on system implementation resources. Everybody for the most part is reaching from the same pools. So <clears throat> Don't, you know, don't listen to your software. If, if a implementer is coming to you saying, oh, we've got access to these uh, exclusive resources, unless they're W2s currently, that, that's not true. Um, so they're all reaching from the same bucket. So the larger players with the marketing and the HR uh, staffing capabilities can probably grab some of those people a little bit easier than some of the smaller players. Uh, with that said, as you move down some of the you know, called the small boutique implementers, they tend to have more vertical focus. They tend to be targeted, you know, whereas the, the bigger ones will say we can handle anything. They've got some varied experience 
in most verticals. Um, it might not be terribly targeted, but they've done a project or two pretty much everywhere. The smaller players will, will are usually chosen uh, for very specific vertical needs. They've got direct experience that ties to an industry, to a you know maybe a geography if it's a localization, uh, and they 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 ideally will bring resources that can very carefully focus on your project specifically. The danger there is they don't have a lot of people, so bandwidth, uh, availability of resources. If they lose somebody, it can be very damaging to your implementation. Uh, again, they can go out and try and recruit people, but they don't have the, they probably don't have the budgets. They don't have the the reach that some of the larger firms do. Then there's the mid tiers, which is a is a hybrid of those. Uh, we generally find the the a lot of the larger ones uh, might have alternative services that they offer accounting firms or, you know, they have a bunch of different things they offer. Usually the, the, that mid tier tends to focus on system integration. They usually will have multiple packages that they work with. Uh, they'll work with a variety of tiers. Um, they tend, what I've seen, and I'm curious, Eric, what you think, it seems to me that the, this is the group that has pretty strong bias for the, the parties, that, the vendors that they're working with, meaning they will go out of their way to make SAP, Microsoft, Oracle, Epic, or whoever it is look really good so that they get more market share funneled to them through the, the vendor leads. Um, you risk that in, in any case, but I, I've seen those kind of in that spot of, you know, we really need to shine because the big players are, they're given and they're not really dependent on that income stream necessarily. They got people who are really eager in that division, but those, those mid tiers, and I don't want to put names out here, but they're really stretching to become number one, number two in a, in a particular software market. Yeah. And they tend to, those mid tier companies oftentimes are the ones that get the more senior people, you know, the people that perhaps worked at one of the big consultancies, they got burned out on that environment and, you know, end up going to a smaller mid tier um, provider. And so that just track record or that, history or tenure in a certain space does create a certain amount of solidified bias, you know, that's even more strong. So that could be part of it, but I agree with you. It's pretty pervasive in the, it's, it's pervasive with the big guys like the Deloitte's and Accenture's of the world. They're all pretty, you know, hell bent on the type of software they want to push. And, um, but the mid tiers, I'd say, I agree with you. I think it's even more pervasive there. Yeah. And just to, yeah. And I, I know we, we like to bash software, vendors and implementers it's it's kind of fun we're you know it, you need these guys and you need them on your team and you need to find the right one one thing you cannot use any of these groups for is software selection just to be clear because they are going back to bias they're pushing whatever it is they support even if they have five packages you know i get a lot of response on the the those top tiers you mentioned accenture deloitte some of those where they do software selection, they say, oh, well, they represent the three packages we're looking at, Microsoft, SAP, and Oracle usually come, sometimes Workday, Salesforce. They represent all of those. But keep in mind that those software vendors will funnel different incentives their way for certain types of projects. If they're breaking into a new vertical, for example, and we just ran across this with one of the big uh, software vendors, when they're breaking into a new vertical, they send unique incentives to, to the system implementer so that they're going to hopefully grab their, uh, their attention to, uh, create bias for a software evaluation. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great point. And it, in it, I've seen plenty of situations. I think you have too, where, you know, Deloitte, Accenture, Capgemini, those guys that maybe 
technically they do have say an SAP and an Oracle practice. And so in theory, you know, you could evaluate both systems, but what they'll do internally is if you're hiring them for the system integrator, they're, they don't want to compete with one another. So they'll, a lot of times they'll kind of rig it to where, you know, they, they have a bias for whatever reason, maybe it's economic, like you just said, or maybe it's political, there's internal political dynamics, or they've got a bunch of people on the bench for one product. They're going to, they're going to push one narrative that is a clear answer based on all those things, some or all those things that you just described. So I think that's an important, uh, really important point. We see it all the time. It's almost like they, they rig it themselves because they don't want, you know, they don't want two or three different groups within the same company all fighting and consuming resources to compete for the same opportunity when they could just, you know, have one clear favorite and focus on that one. In a lot of industries, that's illegal, but <laughs> it's perfectly yeah. fine here in the software world. It's actually a great point. I mean, there, there's a lot of things that happen in this industry that would never fly in a business to consumer type of environment, or even, you know, we were right before we went live here, we were talking about what a racket, you know, general contractors and home improvement, you know, that whole industry is sort of a, a racket as well. Um, but I, I put, you know, I put the ERP and the, the enterprise software space right up there as one of the more corrupt or uh, ethically challenged uh, industries out there. Um, here's a question from uh, Sam, Gran, Sam Graham from Spain, who's a frequent uh, listener and participant in our, in our content. So welcome again, Sam. Good to, good to see you here. Um, and his question is here, if, uh, if using a system integrator, some of their people are going to be less experienced than others and perhaps even new to the software, how should buying companies deal with this? If the, the, sorry, the users, if some of the consultants that are being proposed by a system integrator are less experienced or maybe even new to the software, um, how do you, how do you deal with that when you've got some junior, some more junior people on a project and maybe not the best that you feel like you deserve for a project? How do you, how do you, yeah, well, that's a tough one. And that, that goes back to, you know, having the focus of the system integrator, because we're seeing a lot of this. I mean, they're hiring like crazy, they're training like crazy, but if you get, somebody who's got, you know, one implementation under their belt, how confident are you that they can lead your full implementation? In an ideal world, what you've got is you've got some senior leadership that's helping to train them. Um, That's kind of the norm, but then you've got multiple resources. If you're a small mid-sized company, you don't need multiple resources. So I would actually tend to use that identification as part of the selection for a system integrator. You know, if if they're proposing somebody who, you know, maybe came over from another software, you're going to need somebody else to support. They under maybe understand the project management, the general protocols for implementing software, but in terms of the specifics of, you know, design and, and build of a particular platform, they're going to need some help. So I would actually usually would recommend doing some interviews and understanding who the team is as, as part of your implementation, because that will slow things down. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that it brings up a, you know, maybe even a bigger point, which is no matter who you hire, whether it's one of the big system integrators that are notorious for bringing on, you know, young kids. And that's, to be fair, that's where I started my career. I was, I was one of those young kids that knew nothing about ERP and they hired me and I, you know, got put on a project right away. It was not, I was arguably not delivering the value that I was billing the clients, but you know, that, that was the way it was. But um, so that's their model. You know, they groom people out of college to, you know, develop and, you know, the average person stays for three or four years and then they leave and move on to go somewhere else. But so you get a very, a, a relatively young 
consultant base with these larger system integrators. But whether you, you're looking at a large system integrator like Deloitte, Accenture, Capgemini, or whether you're looking at a mid-tier provider, you, you do have a right as a customer to rationalize and, and challenge the staffing. You know, why do I have the kid straight out of college or, you know, someone that, uh, you know, has it just got certified last month in the technology? Why would I want to pay, you know, $150, $200 an hour for that person when they arguably don't know what they're doing? So I think that's the kind of um, granularity that organizations should be getting more into is to rationalize and validate the cost proposals to say, do we really need all these people? Do they need to be here? full time for X amount of time? Can we stagger it more? Can we rationalize the team, the mix of people, all that stuff? Um, you know, it's, it's your project. I think that's the key. I think a lot of times system integrators will create this perception that, you know, you're the client, you have no idea what you're doing as it relates to the software. We're the experts, just trust us. You need 20 people on this project and half of them are going to be straight out of college. And it's sort of like a, and I'm exaggerating, I'm being a bit tongue in cheek, obviously, but I think that's the the sort of bias that you get from the system integrators often. And again, to be candid and transparent, I was part of that machine. So I was on the other side of it. So I, I, I'm maybe, I was guilty early in my career being part of that as well. Yeah. And sometimes you just can't avoid that. Um, one thing you want to look for is it, it goes back to interviewing the people you're going to be dealing with. If you get a call it a young kid and frankly, some of them are a lot smarter than the senior people that I've met because they're, they're eager, but look for that excitement in learning a new project. If 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 they we all agree that they're learning on this project, but they're excited to do that, they want to be part of your group and take ownership of it. That's a, that's okay um, as long as they've got the support that they need. You know when they when they don't know something. You know on the other end, just into looking about cultural fit and inter, interviewing um, implementers. You know sometimes you get there's a lot of demand right now, and we're starting to see a lot of integrators resources are just becoming essentially burned out, and there's a lot of very senior people who, when you talk to them, you can, you can kind of get the sense they don't want to be on this project. They're, they're doing it because they have to, they're, they've, they, you know, they've gone back to back to back since 2019. And, you know, just with all the demand and the, you know, for new systems, you know, you kind of be cautious of that too, because that can slow you down. So yeah. there's, there, there's, it's, it, you know, you're, you're never, you know, safe with just getting somebody, um, make sure you understand who it is and that you help to, Ideally, you have to help own the and build the excitement for this implementation with the, the implementer. Yeah. Yeah. And also remember too, you know, again, thinking about what motivates people, where might that bias, even if it's unintentional, where might that bias be coming from? And with system integrators, you have to watch for the bias of staffing people on a project full time now. So it's a lot more advantageous for a system integrator to get you a team in place as many people as possible as soon as possible. So what you have to do as a customer is push back and say, do I really need 20 people to show up on Monday? You know, today's Friday, they're going to all show up on Monday. Am I ready for 20 people? What, what is that going to mean to my, my run rate? You know, my, my uh, budget, my run rate, maybe I staggered a little bit more. Maybe, you know, we have a small, a smaller team that is on site for the first few weeks until we get our ducks in a row. Maybe we don't even bring in the system integrator for a certain period of time. And in fact, I have a video coming out next week that covers that exact topic of why you should delay hiring your system integrator until you, do those minimum prerequisites that you should have done before you start engaging with the system integrator. And most system integrators would disagree with that say, no, 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 let's, you want to speed things up. You, you need us there tomorrow or on Monday. Um, and that's the, that's the sort of dance you have to do with, with some of these, these integrators as well. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back more with more questions with Brian. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back.
If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Marcus Harris, and we're in the middle of an interview with Brian Potts, so we want to pick up that conversation here. There's there's a comment here. I, I don't know if it's a question, but maybe you have a comment or a reaction to this, Brian. But the comment on LinkedIn is from uh, Praveen, and he says, core fit solutions for verticals, which every SI claim to cover, but that isn't the case. So is that is that a topic you've seen sort of, uh, you know, accelerators, uh, best practices, pre-configured solutions for certain verticals? The SI say they have it, but Oftentimes that's not true. I'd argue more often than not, that is not true, but what, what are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, we hear that a lot. Oh, we've got you covered. Um, and even at some of the large software conferences, you'll see they have, here's our solution for this, this, and this. What you want to understand about the core solutions is that they're, they're, they're built based on previous experience and every implementation is unique. Um, every company is unique. You're not going to map. If you, if you map exactly to your competitors, then, why are you doing, you know, you're just washing out the market. There, there's that, that's anti-business. You want to, you want to target this and use best practices where available. So there's a, there's a certain percentage of those pre-built best practices, core applications that are going to work for you, but you don't want to just rest on that. So when, when a vendor says, Hey, we've got your industry covered, they probably have a, a percentage of it, but it's not a complete package. You're still going to have to build around that do your full requirements, understanding of where you differentiate and modify accordingly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's another, that's a great point that Praveen brings up, which is uh, you want to watch for that bias as well. And it, again, it's looking at human behavior. It sounds good. It's what we want to hear. You're telling me that there's a pre-configured solution for my industry. So this implementation is going to be easy. It's not going to cost me a lot. And you're, you're resolving or addressing some of my, deep-seated fears that this project might fail or it might go over budget or whatever, or I might get fired if, if the project doesn't go well. So I, I think that you just have to unpack that a bit to understand the dynamics there. Um, and then Praveen also had a follow-up comment here I wanted to get to uh, over here on LinkedIn. And I strongly agree with this comment, and that is that it's not the software vendor alone, but customers that must, must also start organizing their strategic planning and workforce for the implementation. What are your thoughts on that? Or, you know, do you have I, well, I, I, I love when there's an understanding that customers hold a responsibility too, because you can't just say, Mr. Software Vendor, come here and do everything for me. You've got a responsibility of an organization to understand what you're doing. And ultimately that leads to, I think we'll get to this in a little bit, but taking ownership of your project. One of the big risks with just hiring a vendor saying, okay, you got out of the box solutions, get start, you know, bring your team of 20 on Monday and get going. At that point, this, you no longer have control over your software implementation. The vendor does. 
uh, and you want to make sure that you've got the controls in place, you've got everything prepped on your end. That's what you're talking about, that readiness piece as starting that. You want to keep hold of those reins through the implementation. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, you, you and I do a lot of, you and I and others on our team do a lot of public speaking and live events like this one and YouTube videos and all that good stuff. And sometimes it feels like we should just be motivational speakers. We should just go out and motivate people and say, this is your project. You can do it. You own it. <laughs> you know, take responsibility. It's a, it's almost like we you have to light a fire under the butts of, of people that are going through this project to understand, don't just defer all of this to the system integrators um, because, you know, it is your project. You have to own it. Just like uh, you and I were both talking before this, this uh, discussion about uh, us each having our respective uh, remodels and home improvement type stuff happening with contractors. And, you know, as bad, as bad of experience that you and I have both had with, with those, uh, situations, it, it really is, it's our responsibility, right? Something's not going well. We're not just going to keep burning, throwing bad money after good or good money after bad, whatever the cliche is. And you, you're going to, um, you know, you're going to take responsibility and you're going to redirect or pivot however you need to. And that's the way, you know, organizations need to treat these projects as well. And you can't use the excuse that, well, I don't know how to do these projects. I've never done it before. Or I'm not an expert. That may be true, but you do have to recognize enough of when you need to go a different direction or, or pivot off of where, where you are. Um, so kind of building on that thread, but, but sort of shifting gears. Uh, one of the questions I had for you, Brian, is uh, not too long ago, I guess it's been a while now, maybe a year and a half or two years ago, you wrote a blog about this concept of getting accentured and you could easily, you could easily throw in, uh, insert another SI's name in there. You, you know, get Deloitted, you can get Accentured, you can get Capgeminide. Um, you use it as a verb and, and maybe what it was sort of a humorous take, a humorous, but serious take on this whole dynamic that we're talking about here today, but help us understand what, what you meant by that and, and what, how that relates to some of the dynamics to watch out for. Yeah. I'm still getting comments on that. Um, it's it, basically it's it's sort of a, a forewarning. Understand that the larger these larger firms, their model is to basically you know, that concept of taking ownership. They want to take ownership of this project and of basically your organization. And so they've got tentacles in every department. Um, I remember a specific case where we you know we were providing some strategic guidance to an organization that had hired call it the big A. And what we come to find is that they weren't only on the the software, enterprise software side, they were also in the accounting side, they were in data management, they had groups planted. Um, I don't say like a fungus, that sounds bad, but they were they were planted across an organization and they uh, were essentially driving the decisions of the organization because they were able to influence different departments to make decisions based on where they had influence um, elsewhere. You see in a lot of cases, you know, there's another public organization that I walked into and Deloitte had, had offices set up. Um, you know, it's, it's becoming overwhelmed with a consulting group. You need that consulting group. You need their guidance, but make sure that you are maintaining ownership of your company, your organization and your environment and not, um, not just letting them run away and free bill and tell you what you need without your understanding and approval. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think it's, uh, you know, another thing that you see in this whole concept of being accentured or deloited or, you know, insert SI name here is the, the, uh, focus on keeping others out, you know, it's sort of a very, 
protective, uh, protecting the turf sort of approach or mentality where you, you know, you can't, I mentioned before the, the whole concept of, uh, independent contractors and maybe augmenting your SI with independent contractors. Most SIs will fight that very hard and say, no, 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 this is our thing. Because the minute you bring in another third party, suddenly there's a huge amount of transparency. And this happens when we get hired too, by the way, we're independent, we're agnostic. We do not care what software you do or don't implement. But what we do do is we represent the client. So if we come in and start asking questions of, wait, why do you have 20 people on this project? What are these 20 people doing? And do you need all 20 of them? They don't want that. And so you have to recognize that too and say, you know, they would rather fight off and keep someone like us or uh, any other third party, you know, keep them out of the picture because then that suddenly they're accountable if they have to show that sort of transparency. Yeah. And keep, yeah, actually that's a good point because um, come to learn that several of these organizations actually have very specific trainings. Once you hit the manager level on how to keep others out of your account, Um, they're, they're trained on that. and, And the way it's done is, is, you know, they're very, very good at what they, I mean, they should, literally they should teach seminars on how they do this, but you, you build uh, relationships with the key stakeholders, you know, the C-level in an organization, um, make them your best friend. And every decision that is then made is funneled through you as, as their account rep. Um, and usually that's done at the partner level. And it, it's, it's very difficult to break in because there it, it, it's a created, it's another created bias. Um, is, is essentially what they're doing is that we are your trusted advisor come through us for anything. No, you don't need a separate quality assurance. We talk a lot about the idea of QA. Why in the world would you hire one organization to quality assure their own work? It, it makes no sense, but it happens all the time. And we we've run into that numerous times, especially, and it's especially the case with the larger uh, implementation firms and auditing firms. Yeah. And we have, we've had multiple larger clients like multinational fortune 500 companies that will um in those cases they will have a full-time account exec or account manager and their their only job is to focus on you you know you the client and make sure that they're maximizing their revenue on that account making sure that they um you know just keep their foot in the door um so they'll, they'll invest a lot of money to make sure that you know you do things their way and that they they have a very sticky approach to their their consulting um, in that way. Um, here's a, 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 I'm trying to pick which one to go with here. There's a lot of really good comments and questions here. Um, some of them coming in here on Crowdcast now, but uh, this one is from um, Amin uh, on Crowdcast. And he says, as an, ex, as an ex-Accenture consultant, I've seen and worked with new hired employees getting assigned on client projects with basically no prior knowledge of SAP and acting as an expert. And then he said, I know what you mean by Accenture, LOL. So um, there's some validation from a, a former uh, Accenture person there. So thank you for that that uh, comment and, and input. Um, another question here is uh, from Safe on, on uh, I guess this is on Crowdcast where this question came in. But at what stage do you think independent consultants like third stage should be engaged by the client? Much bef- Should it be before engaging the system integrator? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, it's ideal. To, you can say yes. I mean, ideally, you're work, you're working with an independent to help through the selection, which should include the you know the selection acquisition of a system integrator. Uh, a lot of times, it's not realized. Budget's not allocated. Things happen very fast. Somebody you know has made a decision. We're going to go with this group to implement software. So sometimes you don't have a choice. In which case, you know, it's better to bring in support when you realize you need help. Um, 
if, if you don't have the opportunity to do it from the beginning. But ideally, you've got support as you're creating your strategy, as you're going through the evaluation of technology. Because another thing to consider when you're talking to system integrators, they're going to make brash assumptions that you need more uh, than maybe you do. So when you, you know, one thing that we do in our evaluation cycle is determine what, in, in the case, ERP means or HCM. There's a lot of different functional pairings that that you might be buying that you don't need. Uh, you've got overlap with existing systems. In a case of a best of breed, we find that we find a whole lot of overlap where you've got two heavy systems that can kind of do the same thing. If you're able to purchase and turn on and off functionality, great. But if not, you're you're spending a lot more money and adding complexity to the implementation because integrating those things where they've got competing interests is also difficult. Yeah, great point. And the one that I think we see the most often is for organizations that are implementing SAP as for HANA as their core ERP system. SAP has gone out, for those of you that don't know, SAP has gone out and acquired a bunch of other technologies to augment S4 HANA. So they they acquired Ariba a while back, which is a, a procurement supply chain management type of software. They acquired Concur for time and expense reporting, success factors for uh, human capital management or HR. And what they do is they'll say, hey, these are all our products. You should be buying our suite of products. You don't want a third party you know, to have to bolt on to S4 HANA. But in reality, if you implement Ariba, for example, or SuccessFactors with S4 HANA, that is like any other third-party vendor. It just so happens that SAP owns it. But they'll tell you something different. They'll tell you that you need to use their product because it, it'll integrate better or be easier or whatever. But we just haven't seen that to be true at all. Um, and it's, you know, that's that same thing, not just SAP. You can say the same thing for a lot of these uh, companies, especially the, the larger ones as well. Um, another uh, comment slash question here over on LinkedIn is from uh, Satnam, and I apologize if I if I messed up your name or butchered it, but Satnam says, one of my employers wanted to hire a newly set up system integrator to help implement ERP, but they had a group of very skilled contractors who could do the job, but they, prefer, but they preferred, and the SI, oh, but they preferred the SI because they thought there's less risk uh, with the, the system integrator. What are your thoughts? I think there's a risk either way, but if you already have the skills, then I would prefer contractors. They're less expensive, whereas with the SI, you don't know what you will get. So it comes back to the whole single system integrator that brings all the resources. And by the way, many of them are going to be independent contractors. They just so happen to be, you know, under the contractor, under the umbrella of the software vendor. But what are your what are your thoughts on that? I know we touched on it a little bit earlier, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, there's pros and cons in both directions there. Um, if you're working with independents, you know, a couple of the things you want to be wary of is you want to make sure that they have the certification. They might have the the capability, but the certification authorization for new releases of software has to be maintained. The other the other potential risk of bringing the independent route is you've got multiple contracts to deal with, whereas with a system integrator, it's one throat to choke in a sense. Now, on the other end, you're going to be paying more for that. So it's a risk versus reward. Um, you're going to be, you're not necessarily getting better service either way, but it's the simplicity of when you need help, how you navigate it. If you've got in strong internal project management capability, that might steer towards let's work with the independents. If you've got less internal capability to manage a project and, and resources that would lead more to the system integrator, but then you're risking them taking over the project from you. So uh, you might need to bring in third, depending on the size of the organization, complexity and all that, you might need additional third-party support. So there's a, there's a, what I would do is set up a pro and con 
you know, spreadsheet and just say, here's the benefits in each case and here are the risks and, and kind of weigh it out because it's, it's not an easy decision. Uh, there's, there's risk both ways. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And, you know, back to your, I want to come back to your response on the, the question of whether or not you should bring in a third party or an independent third party before bringing on your system integrator. Um, and whether it's, you know, this is true, whether it's third stage you might bring on or whether you, you try to do this yourself, if you have the right competencies, it, the answer is the same. But one point I would make is that a lot of times uh, what happens is you pick a software, whatever it is, whatever technology you're going to deploy, you pick the technology and there's a lot of momentum and excitement behind that. So people are, are ready for the change. And, um, you know, usually you've got alignment on this is the direction we're going. And then what happens is that excitement gets combined with pressure from the system integrator or the software vendor of let's get started right away. And organizations oftentimes just jump in. They just, and we've referred to it in the past as cliff diving. They just jump off the cliff and just start doing stuff or they just start going. And there's a lot of risk there that actually costs you a lot of time and money later on and actually slows you down. It may seem like you're going faster, but you're not. What you're doing is you're, you're creating a lot of chaos and turmoil because now you're bringing in system integrators who just want to know how to design and build the software but most of the time, organizations that have just picked a new software, they aren't ready. They don't know what they want to get out of the software yet. They haven't defined their business processes yet. But the system integrators tell them, don't worry about that. We'll come in and we'll help you figure out what your processes are. The problem is they're going to help you figure out how the transactions work within a system. They're not going to tell you how your macro processes are going to look and how the change is going to look organizationally and how you're going to deploy that change. They're just focusing on the, the technology, maybe some light training to go along with that. So... I think that's a, an important thing is you want to, that moment you, the, from the time you select the software until you bring your system integrator on and actually start designing and building software, there's a, there's a period there where I would argue that's the most important part of your project because that's where you're defining the blueprint and the foundation for a successful project. And if you do that phase of the project right, and we often refer to it as implementation readiness, that implementation readiness, implementation planning phase um, is critical. And if you spend the time to get that right, you're going to speed things up later and you're going to save a lot of time and money and not waste, you know, the time and money that goes along with spinning your wheels, trying to figure out, you know, what you want to be when you grow up while, you know, the system integrator is charging you by the hour to figure that out. Um, and the reason I bring that up is that there was a, another question I wanted to get to that sort of tied back into that. Uh, let me go back here real quick to those questions. Um, so, when you think about a system integrator and what they can and can't do and, and the skills and competencies are required to make a overall transformation successful, what are the, what are the common weaknesses of, of system integrators? The things that they don't do well or the gaps in their competencies that you somehow need to find a way to fill as part of your planning? Yeah. To, to start answering that, I would go back to the, the centered concept and wanting to protect their own interests. So the, the biggest risk is they're going to say they can do everything. They're going to say we got you covered. And if they if they know they, there's something that they don't have covered, they're going to try and figure it out so that they don't lose a percentage of revenue or control. Really, it's about control of the project, I think. Um, you look at the, the base, generally the, the, the core benefit that a system emulator brings is the capability to modify, build, design, a particular software, basically the technical integration of the software package. Outside of there is where they start to weaken. Now they all got different respects in what they can do. Uh, they're usually not good, frankly, with, with based project management. They bring project managers, but that's what that is, is an internal project manager to handle their resources and their 
responsibilities and the implementation. So in terms of program management, let's differentiate those. They don't, they'll bring project management, not program management. They're not able to big put that bigger picture together that you were just talking about. Another major area of weakness we always talk about is organizational change management. They don't understand it. Sometimes they say they do. Sometimes they'll bring in, you know, an ADCAR certified rep or something, but they don't have the support really to, it's, it's outside of what they do. They might be trying to supplement it a little bit, but it, we rarely see success with that. Sometimes they're okay. There's a few that might be okay at it, but it's not the core of, of what they're offering. It's a supplemental benefit that they try and bring. Uh, one other area to watch is um, integration, data management, and some of those areas that skew a little bit outside of the core software. So when you're talking about you know, hooking up two softwares, they understand their software, they might, and the, the coding and all that they get, but then there's another aspect, which is bringing in, you know, another software. Sometimes it requires a additional party. Um, they're going to fumble through that a little bit in a, in a lot of cases, and they don't understand the greater concept of architecture in a lot of cases. They know what their software can do, and they think it can do everything, but when you talk about, oh, we're going to bring in a third-party CRM, they're like, well, we've got CRM. Like, well, no, but I want to bring in Salesforce. I want to bring in you know, Dynamics here and whatever the, the case may be to in, integrate with this core ERP that we're implementing, they struggle with that. And and the re, it's more, it goes back to that bias because they were trained that our software does everything. Yeah. Yeah, it's very true. I like how you describe the program versus project management because the another way to take that even a step further is if, if a system integrator is telling you that they have the the project manager for your project, there's a couple things wrong with that. First of all, it's not the project manager. It's the, I would consider it the, the technical lead for that work stream within a broader project. So that's a way to think about system integrators is their project manager is really the technical project manager or the technical lead. The other part of it too is um, not only do you need a broader program manager, but you need someone that's, uh, you can bring in outside help and the a service we provide at third stage is that program management quality assurance. But you also need, even with that, you still need someone internally that can be the, the, the real program manager, I call it, they, really it should be someone internal within your organization that's the program manager, even if you have third stage. I mean, we're there to advise. We'll, you know, we have our program managers that'll help advise sort of behind the scenes to help you manage, but really you should own that. And the technical lead from the system integrator should report up to you as, as, as well as the change lead and the data lead and the business process improvement lead or whatever other, you know, however you structure the project. Those are all important, important points. And I think that... <clears throat> Just to build on your your comment about change management too, a lot of organizations think that, you know, the SI said that they are going to do change. They've got the ProSci certified person that's going to help us with communications and training. Well, that's sort of the reactive part of change management. There's a more strategic part that needs to happen up front that SIs generally aren't good at, which is helping define what the organization is going to look like going forward, how we're going to move to a shared service model, or how we're going to redefine roles and responsibilities. So actually defining the change, not just communicating the change that you haven't defined yet um, and not just communicating and training how the new system is going to work because the system is only one part of it. We have to take a broader view of, of that change management too. I actually think a lot of, I've, I've had a recent conversations. I think clients and implementing companies are getting better at that understanding. I've talked to a lot of large organizations that are referring to their ERP project as part of a greater transformation. I mean, they're, they're, they're putting, the pieces in, you know, these siloed projects as part of a greater overall project and transformation. They're starting to see that, you know, a new ERP, for example, isn't an entire transformation in itself. It requires more tangents, more inputs, 
you know, change program management and all that stuff. So yeah, I think yeah, your, your message is getting out. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then uh, just in the interest of time, I mean, we're coming up on the on the top of the hour here. I'll, I'll get to maybe one, maybe two more questions, depending on how where we go here. But um, what about, uh, here's a question from another question from uh, Sam Graham over here on Crowdcast. And that question is, is it realistic to expect salespeople to fully understand the software that they're selling? And they and are they not just reselling the sales pitch that they've been sold? What are your thoughts on that? Exactly. <laughs> so that's how salespeople are trained. Uh, you know, in my, my career, I've gone through a lot of different sales roles. And, and the majority of what you get is you get a booklet. I'm, I'm old, you know, old school. They actually would have a you know laminated booklet that they'd give you and say, this is your sales pitch. Here's what you say. Um, as you get, you know, the longer you go, you start to learn a little bit more, get your own verbiage down. But you're really relating what you were told to say and taught to say. Um, whether you understand it fully or not, there, there's very few people who truly understand all aspects of a software. Uh, they're, they're too complex. There's too, too many variants. Um, and then when you try and understand a client scenario and business environment along with a software, it, it, they're going to be making assumptions and those assumptions are based on what they're taught. So that's, I think it's a very fair statement. Yeah. Um, I, our, our, uh, apparently our YouTube stream just went down. So I'm messaging them how to get over to one of the other platforms here. Um, so that's a, that's a great, a great point there on, on, uh, you know, how to, how to address that. And I think the, um, you know, a way to maybe sift through or maybe catch on to any, um, uh, bogus sales pitch is, is watch for the buzzwords. Whenever you hear a, a buzzword, like, Best practice, for example, that that word that term just drives me insane because it's such a bogus term. It's such a bogus uh, thing, and it doesn't exist. But you hear it, but it sounds good. You know, it's like, ooh, best practice. That's what I want in my organization. So if you hear a buzzy word like that, it's probably because they're trying to spin something a certain way. So that's a, a one way you can you can sort of uh, decipher through or, or sort of see through the the uh, the sales spin. Uh, another would be like. Um, you know, lift and shift. We were talking about that earlier today about how this is just going to be a simple lift and shift from one system to another. That is complete garbage too, especially in today's day and age where it's complete rewrites of the software, you know, as, as companies are moving to the cloud. So, you know, that's one thing you could do. The other thing too, that um, is a, is a possibility is, is in your RFP, instead of asking what they can do, which you, you do want to do, you want to ask like, can your software do A, B, and C? And chances are you're going to hear yes, 99% of the time or more. But you could also ask in the RFP, you know, tell us the top 10 things that your system doesn't do well, you know, or which of our 10 requirements are the least, um, you know, the, the least able to be met by addressed by your software. Something like that that's focusing, forcing the vendors to focus on the negative, even though they don't want to tell you that you, you do want to find out because even if you pick that software, you need to know where those gaps are. So that's those are some possibilities there just to get to the bottom of where the truth lies. Okay. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for being on the show today. It's great, great having you on again. And we're going to take a quick break and come back to Marcus Harris. And we're going to go a little bit further down this path of the stuff you can do upfront during an evaluation or during your early uh, procurement and evaluation processes to make sure you're successful. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control.
you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Marcus Harris, and we just had a, a great conversation with Brian Potts about some of the things that organizations can be doing early on in their transformation to make sure that they're navigating bias and getting an objective view and objective execution of their transformation. And Marcus, as I was listening to this discussion or listening to what, what Brian had to say, it sort of reminded me or it, gave back, it got me back to a real fundamental point here, which is that so much of this and everything we've talked about in this episode so far has to do with risk and mitigating risk along the way. And, and Lord knows there's a ton of risk on these sorts of projects and, and there's a lot of different uh, places that that risk is coming from. It's a lot, a lot like that whack-a-mole game from when we were kids. You, you'd whack the mole and then another one pops up somewhere else and you got to keep whacking moles, but they never, they never stop. Yeah, so what, you know, when you're, if we back up now and back to your point earlier in this episode, you, you, you made the comment that it's, you know, cheaper to hire, hire an attorney early rather than later. But as we look to the early part of a transformation, before you get too far into it, what are some of the biggest things that companies and teams can be doing to, to mitigate risk during the procurement process in particular? Yeah, I mean, you know, look, during, during the procurement process, I think certainly, and, and to some extent this should go without saying, you've got to evaluate more than one vendor, right? Um, you've really got to see what your options are. And I think you can't, you can't successfully evaluate whether these software products or vendors are going to meet your needs without having some understanding of what your needs are. So that to me is probably the biggest thing, just just having a realistic understanding of your business processes, you know, what the current state is and what the post implementation state's going to be like once you once you adopted that particular piece of software to the to the amount that, to the extent you can, right? I think you know, part and parcel of this evaluation process, or it's things like software demonstrations, um, you know, site references or site visits. All of those things are, are incredibly important. But I mean, you know, it, it's it's simple things and nuances like you know, having having the vendor demonstrate the software using a software demonstration script that you have designed, and with you know, representative samples of your own data, so that you can actually see how that software performs. In, in something that kind of, you know, represents you know, how you'd actually use it. I mean, that's, you know, that's not something a lot of people do. And I think it's fundamental that, that, that everybody does that. I mean, you're not going to get a good sense of how that software is going to address your needs without doing something like that. I think the other thing, you know, there's a whole hornet's nest associated with site visits and references. And we see this in litigation all the time. It's, you know, the, the, the vendor is going to try to hold those close to the vest, the, the, the actual site visits and the references. And what we see is, you know, you let's say you're you're a customer, you're in, in a unique industry or a key industry for the vendor, 
and you want to see other other companies that have the same volume of transactions, the same types of business processes that you do, and that are in the same industry, right? And instead, what you get, you get visits to people that, you know, are in, in retail, but you're in manufacturing, you know, or you're in distribution, and you're, you're, you're seeing somebody that's not in distribution, or is only kind of in distribution. So, you know, the value of that kind of a software visit isn't really going to be very, very high for you. And I think it's incumbent upon you to say, look, here's what I need to see in a software visit. Here's the kind of company that I want to visit. And this is the kind of functionality that needs to be demonstrated and the kind of performance that I need to see. And, you know, I think if, if you can document that and request it, then then you're doing yourself a pretty good, pretty good service, right? But what we see is that, you know, the, the vendor doesn't have the right kind of reference, so they're giving you, you know, they're trying to fit a, you know, a, 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 round, a round peg into a square hole, so to speak. And, and if you see that happening, you get really got to take a step back and say, look, you know, why am I not seeing, you know, people in my own industry using this piece of software in a way that I want to use it? Um, that's a, a huge red flag that I think needs to be explored, needs to be asked about, um, because there's a reason why you're not, right? You might be the, you might be the first one. And that's not a position you want to be in. And I think even when you're there at a site visit in particular, you need to have free reign to ask you know, what kind of questions that you want to ask and, and see the kind of functionality demonstrated that you want to see. Because I think these things are very choreographed. A lot of times, you know, these customers are actually paid to, to provide you with feedback. You know, they're getting free maintenance, free customizations, free, free years of licensing, whatever it is. You know, be assured that they're getting some kind of a kickback to tell you exactly what they want to see or what you want to see. And it goes farther than that even. I mean, I've seen documentation where you've got sales reps actually telling um, specifically the, the current customer what to tell the prospective customer about the system and the performance and, and the functionality. So, you know, you've, you've got to, you've, you've got to, that, that's what you're up against, right? Um, and so, you know, you, you can, you can do everything right, but what you can't account for and what you can't, can't, get around is somebody lying to you. I'm not saying that that happens all the time or, or that it's common. We see it and you know, we have a, you know, kind of a, a skewed vision of it because, you know, those are the kinds of cases that we litigate. Um, but certainly I think, you know, software vendors um, are, are really, and I use this term before, they're really trying to sell you the sizzle and not the steak, right? And you're not seeing an adequate representation sometimes. So, but, but I think you've got to do your due diligence and really ask the questions and see as many site that go on as many site visits and call as many customers as you possibly can. But you have to know what kind of questions to ask. Yeah. You know, you, you triggered an interesting thought. It, it actually is something that uh, is top of mind for me because yesterday I filmed a, a batch of YouTube videos for my YouTube channel. One of the topics I covered that'll come out here in a few weeks is uh, how to basically how to uh, fight the powers of the software industry. And one of the things I talk about in that that you sort of reminded me of, and it, it sort of comes to mind is this whole concept that when you're dealing with a with an ERP purchase, and an ERP being a broad single system that's going to be used by your entire organization, and you scale that up to a big organization, big Fortune 500 or Fortune 1000 company, there is just so much money at stake for the software vendor. And you're, you're concentrating all that spend with one vendor. And so the vendor is going to fight like hell to get that deal, and they're going to do what they need to do to get that. And for a lot of these sales reps, you know, they're going to make two years, you know, they're going to be set for two, three years on this one deal if they can just close this one deal. So you have to sort of understand the behavior behind it, not to justify it, but just understand that's what that's what's at stake. So you've got a guy or gal that could make their number for the next three years if they close this one deal. 
what are they what what are they probably going to do? They're probably going to do everything in their power to make sure that you see the sizzle, not the steak. And uh, and you know one of the points I make in this video too is are there you have to look at opportunities to potentially um, I forgot the word I used, but sort of not decentralize, but fragment the spend a little bit. Like if you can de, you know, unconsolidate, what's the opposite of consolidate? You don't want to consolidate all the spend to one. You want to sort of spread the spend out to multiple parties. That, that does alleviate, it doesn't fix the, all the problems, but it does mitigate some of that risk that, that you tend to see. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, or if you, you find that when the stakes get that high, the behavior becomes that much worse for software vendors. Well, it, we, we've seen some pretty crazy things and, and you know, I've, I've been in in house and I won't say the company, but, you know, I, I've seen we've seen sales reps or sales directors or VPs of, of regions on the sales side that need to make their number. And so you know, one of the tools that they use is a software audit. Right. I mean, this isn't directly on point, but it kind of it kind of illustrates the broader point. And they'll say, OK, well, you know, I need I need to make X amount. And so I'm going to audit these three customers and you know how much money I'm going to find? I'm going to find X amount. And you know why I'm finding that money? Because that's the money I need to make my number. And, it, you know, it, it, it can be that that aggressive and unfair, you know, on on, on the on the sales effort, sales cycle procurement side. I, I've seen exactly what you're talking about. I mean, you know, these people are going to get a huge payday. Right. And, you know, they're they're incented by commission. And, and they live and die by by you know their sales numbers. I mean, I've seen things where you know you've got people, sales reps in particular, that that you know go kind of KGB, and they obtain the you know the, the the sales presentations or the demonstrations of their competitors' software products in a covert way that that clearly to me as an attorney is is certainly you know, violating you know their their proprietary rights in that software, or they're authorizing proprietary information without access in violation of, of, of certainly the customer's NDA with, with, with that vendor, right? But they don't care. They're getting an unfair advantage by seeing exactly what your competitor, their competitor has shown to you, and then addressing those points specifically. And you're not actually getting to make an objective decision at that point. You know, I mean, that's how crazy this stuff can be. And again, it's not every case, it's not every salesperson, it's not every vendor. But yeah, I mean, it it it's it's crazier than you think it would be. You know? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's just a, a bizarre. It sometimes you know, hearing you and I talk through this, if if I hadn't lived it like you have, I would think this is all made up. You know, this is sort of a a great storyline for some movie or a book or something, but not reality. But unfortunately, it is reality. Oh, it's 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 totally reality. I mean, you know, they they get these smooth talking sales reps um, that you know take you out. They wine you, they dine you. They they actually pit different parts of the company against each other. You know, to 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 try to help make their their case. It's like, well, you know, look, Kimberling is on our is 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 pro you know software vendor X, and you know you should be too because his concerns with this piece of functionality have been alleviated, and you just need to listen to him. And you know, I mean, it's it's crazy what you see. It really yeah. is. Yeah, it's bizarre. I, I want to come back to something you, you mentioned in passing early on, but I knew I'd come back to ask you now. But you talked about in the contracts, you talked about this whole concept of the live URL. You're signing off on a contract with a link to a document that you have no control over, no, no visibility to when there's changes unless you happen to go click on it. Can you explain that dynamic a little bit and you know how prevalent that is? I've heard you speak on this before, and this is super interesting. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly prevalent. I think every vendor has shifted to that model. And it was something that was unheard of, you know, seven years ago. And essentially what you have is 
a contract that you've signed that can be unilaterally modified at any time by the vendor by posting a new version of the terms and conditions on 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 their website. Okay. Now it, it may not go to the fundamental, you know, underlying terms and conditions, the the reps and the warranties and the limitations of liability, but certainly things like the kinds of functionality you're getting, the kinds of metrics that that you're going to measure that functionality by, that can all change. Um, sometimes privacy policies can change, um, DPAs can change. A lot, you know, there's a lot of aspects to that contract. They're going to be able to be modified by that vendor without your input or even consent, but but you've already consented to it. And that's the opposite of, of, of entering into, you know, uh, a contract, in my view. I mean, you know, you, you can't have something that you've signed that's a living document and can move, the, the target can move at any point, and, and the one that determines how far it's going to move is the vendor. That, that's, that, that's what we're dealing with today. Um, and we've got, you know, techniques for, for alleviating that concern or at least mitigating the risk posed by, posed by that strategy. But, you know, the reason they do that, and this is where, you know, you've, you've got to meet in the middle and you've got to get somebody that kind of understands the rationale behind that. You know, one of the rationales of the vendor is, look, you know, this is a dynamic product, right? And it's, it's, it's being provided across our customer base. And we have to have the flexibility to be able to modify that or modify the way that we deliver it. So we can't have this static term that prevents us from actually getting better. That, that's kind of the rationale behind it. And I think that's a legitimate reason to have some of this. You know, one of the ways that we do it uh, or deal with this issue rather contractually is you know, to have some kind of a caveat that says, yeah, you can modify these, but you know, these terms and conditions, but to the extent that it, it, it is detrimental in our reasonable view, then you know we're not going to be bound by it, or you know if they don't agree to that, then we can terminate it without terminate the agreement without um, penalty, that that kind of stuff, you know, or or you know really kind of you want to narrow the scope of what actually can be modified, but it can be a huge problem, and you know for the uninitiated, you sign a contract like that, good luck, you know, um, you know they're going to change the documentation, which which impacts the warranties. Um, which impacts your ability to, you know, to enforce the contract. You know, the 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 parade of horribles is is almost unending because of that. Yeah, and I think it's you know the the other problem I think is that so many so many of us have been conditioned just to accept terms and conditions on like an app. You know, I go to my I, I go to use Facebook or Instagram or any app on my phone. I have to agree to certain terms and conditions, and you just hit OK. And most of us don't read it and. Quite frankly, it's not going to be material to most of us. Whatever they decide to do, you know, in most cases may not be that material to us. But here you're talking about the sort of the, the guts of your business. You know, it's the technology that's using to run your business and you're ceding control in many cases to that those terms and conditions and that, you know, unilateral change potentially to those terms and conditions. You're, you're ceding control to a vendor who does not have your, your business's best interest in mind. Right. And, you know, not only that, I mean, the, the, these contracts now are designed to look like they're not substantive, you know, and there's 15 URLs that are they're referenced, you know, in that document. And instead of it actually being a three page contract, it's now a 50 page contract, you know, and it just keeps unraveling because there's URLs embedded in URLs. And I mean, it's just it's just crazy. But you're right. I mean, you know, I think I think and that and that's what they play on to some extent is is. The, the way that people interact with those kinds of terms and conditions today, at least on an individual basis, is is just by clicking to accept, and there isn't any kind of of of, of you know real consequence to it. But here, you know, when you when you're replacing essentially you know the whole spinal cord and nervous system of your business with a new one, you you can't you can't just leave that to chance. 
um, from a terms and conditions standpoint. And, and that's what they want. Because again, you know, they make money by signing new deals and the faster they sign new deals, the more money they make. They don't want to have protracted sales cycles and sales efforts that take months and months and months to negotiate contracts. Yeah. Yeah. And to a point you made earlier in the, in the first segment today, um, you talked about how it's not advisable to negotiate a multi-million dollar contract, you know, in just a day or two. And along the same lines, it seems like, you know, organizations get pressure from the vendor. So for example, using this URL thing, the hot link that could be modified unilaterally by the vendor. Let's just say that I'm a buyer and I'm about to sign on the dotted line and I question that and I want to change something with that or I want to negotiate the T's and C's. What often ends up happening is you get a sales rep who says, you know, first of all, they don't have the authority to to agree or to that or not. So they end up sort of hemming and hawing or throwing a fit because, well, now we're gonna have to run it up the chain and oh, the quarter ends next week and this deal's off the table if we can't get this deal closed next week. And they use these financial incentives to get you to not worry about the fine print and worry about those contractual details. But chances are you're not saving nearly enough money by signing today or next week or whatever to justify the risk that you're taking on by not negotiating what's best for you. Well, yeah, and I think I think that's that's really the way to look at it. And you're you're exactly right. We 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 did this. I dealt with this yesterday. Yesterday was was quarter end, and we had a large software vendor that everybody knows on a multi million dollar deal. You know, they sent us our their, their acceptance and rejection of our changes at about I think it was two 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 in the afternoon yesterday, and we get kind of a snarky email from the the VP of, of channels and says, you know, look, our deadline is five p.m. and if you can't get get this thing turned around to us and signed by 5 p.m., we're not going to be able to, to, to do it, to the, do the deal. And, you know, to which I shot back an email that said, look, I've negotiated with your company, you know, dozens and dozens of times and, and very late into the evening, um, you know. So, yeah, th- this false sense of, 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 of pressure and scarcity, you know, and, and the financial incentives are all going to go away, they, they use that as a tactic. And I think, you know, in my experience at least, you know, you're going to save more money by spending paying attention to you know, the terms and conditions and the implications of some of these contractual constraints than you are by getting a, dis, a huge discount off of list price, you know, or, or future options on products that maybe you're never going to exercise it on. So, you know, I think you have to have kind of uh, take a step back, like I said, pump the brakes on this whole thing and, and really think about what's important. You know, you're getting a front end discount off of a product that's always discounted, you know, oh, you get, you got 52% off list. Well, you know, good for you, but everybody does, you know, or it's, you know, it doesn't mean anything. No one pays less price. I don't know about you, but I, I have yet to see a situation with any vendor or any of their customers where, and it's, this doesn't happen a lot, but in the times I have seen this happen where client does the right thing and says, you know what, fine, I'm going to let this deadline come and go, you know, fine, take the deal off the table if you want. You have to, I mean, it's hard to do for a lot of organizations because by that point, you've already sort of committed to that vendor and you've got internal alignment and momentum behind that decision. So it can be easy to say, well, shoot, you know, I I don't want to cost my company a ton of money and lose this deal. But I have yet to see a a vendor that's actually taken a deal off the table. It's it's happened multiple times in my career where um, company comes back next day, next week, next month and says, hey, you know, I'd be interested if you could still honor this deal. They're not gonna. The vendors aren't gonna turn it down. They might try to. They might try to negotiate back up, but they're they're not going to take it off the table. If it was a if it was profitable to them in Q two, it's going to be just as profitable to them in Q three. It's just that the sales rep, the 
the sales rep may not have met their number that they wanted to meet by getting the deal done in Q2, which is, which is not your problem, by the way, and that you shouldn't make that your problem as a, as a buying organization. Well, absolutely. And I think, I think you're, you're, most customers try to make it their problem and I don't understand why they do that. You know, I mean, I think they just want to be nice and they want to you know, respect the process and, and, you know, they, they develop a relationship with this person, but you're right. And I don't, I don't think I've ever seen, certainly not, I have never seen a deal taken off the table because it didn't come in by a certain time, right. Or quarter end or whatever year end. Um, but I have seen the, the discount structure modified slightly, but only once. So, you know, I think, I think it, it, it's, it's uncommon and, you know, those are kind of hollow, hollow threats. Yeah. Yeah. And you also have to wonder too, you know, you know, is that the kind of vendor I want to be working with? You know, one that's really going to pressure me in that way and not give me the time I need to negotiate a contract and to make sure I've got my ducks in a row internally or whatever, you know, before I, before I commit. I mean, this is a major decision that organizations are making. It's, it's an enormous decision. And, you know, the sales rep is going to move on to the next deal, right? Or even the next company. And, and you know, these, you know, these, these sales reps are, are you know, go, go from company to company in their career. Um, and they all talk to each other. You know, they're not, they're not going to care that they sold you a system that, that didn't really meet your needs and that, you know, you're going to have to replace early because, you know, you didn't do your due diligence because they prevented you from doing it, say. So, you know, you're the one that has to live with that system. And I think, you know, pumping the brakes, slowing it down, really evaluating the risk associated with that contract, um, both from a legal terms and conditions and just from a monetary standpoint is, is the only way to really proceed. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it uh, sort of reminds me of a sports analogy a little bit where, you know, in a lot of sports like American football or uh, even basketball, and this may be true for all sports, but, you know, there's a school of thought around the championship teams for any given sport and how they, they peak at the right time. They know when to hit their stride. And I think a lot of ha when you think about a transformation and if you think of sort of the championship or the playoffs is when you go live and you, you turn the corner and you're actually using whatever technology and process you change. But so many organizations peak way too early. You know, they're, they're the momentum, the momentum, the excitement, the speed they go, they go super fast early on and they make the decision they sign the contract system integrator is going to show up next week and start implementing stuff. And then boom, you run into a brick wall of challenges and problems and you're, you know, the meter is running. And then it, it just, you know, you drop off from there. And by the time you get to go live, you know, the teams, you know, the, the project team is in defeat and they're demoralized and there's all these problems. And, you know, so I think you just have to look at it from that regard. You don't need to rush right now. Now's the last, you know, the, probably the last time in the process you want to rush is when you're trying to procure the software, procure the, the services agreement. Yeah, that's a, that's a great analogy. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think rushing in on the front end is the worst thing to do, right? Because it's just going to slow down the process on the back end. But, you know, and, 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 you know, look, I mean, people do this for rational reasons. The, the customers do this for rational reasons, accelerate that process because they're being incented to do that. Right. It's and I think you mentioned this. It's not only monetary incentives, but, you know, the, the, the right mix of consultants is not going to be available. They're going to put on other projects or we're not going to have the right team for you. So you get assigned now. I mean, that's all artificial pressure, you know. Um, and, you know, look, that's not to say that there's not some legitimacy to that sometimes. But, you know, I mean, this is what they do for a living, right? They implement software. They've got to have the right consultants, but they've got to have consultants to dedicate to the team. You know, so I think I think a lot of those threats are are just designed to increase pressure and to, to accelerate the sales process. Yeah, I agreed. Now, uh, one last sort of topic I want to hit on before we we wrap up today is we've talked a lot about software contracts, 
But what about on the system integrator side or the implementer, the, the third party technical consultants, whatever you're calling them, the contract, you usually have two different contracts. You have the software license agreement and the, all the contracts that go with that. And then you've got the services or the implementation services agreements. What, what are some of the common challenges or risks or things to look out for when you're negotiating with a system integrator or a VAR? Yeah, I mean, look, there's, you're right, there's, there's, there's a two contract structure, right? Or two buckets of contracts, if you will. Um, you've got the software license agreement, like you said, with all its associated documents and, and, and kind of collateral agreements. And then you've got the integration document, the MSA, the consulting agreement, the PSA, whatever, whatever, whatever they call it. And to me, that particular document and the associated statements of work are probably the most important document out of this whole bundle, right? Because like I said, if it's going to fail, it's going to fail in the implementation process. It's not necessarily going to fail because the software doesn't work. So, you know, the, the way to mitigate the risk and, and, and take it out of a, from a legal, pure legal perspective. I mean, you know, look, you've got, you, legally, you've got, you know, warranties, limitations of liability, indemnity. Those are kind of the biggest tickets from a pure legal perspective. And I think any, any attorney that understands commercial contracts is going to have an understanding of what those are. But <clears throat> where, where you know, the nuance and the art of this comes in play is, is in those provisions that directly read on the actual implementation of the software. <clears throat> and what I mean by that is you look at a statement of work and vendors are notorious for doing this. It doesn't actually say anything, okay? It's got some vague description of a project and goals and what, they're, what they want to do, but there's no hard line commitment as to, you know, what deliverables are going to be provided. You know, what happens if those deliverables don't, don't comply um, or conform with mutually agreed upon specifications? You know, is there a timeline? Is, are there milestones? Um, you know, is there some kind of a, a change order process that is going to be meaningful in detail? You know, when, when are we going to go outside scope? And do we understand why we're going outside scope and what the impact to, to the budget is and to the timeline? Um, you know, all of that stuff needs to be detailed with a very high level of specificity. And remember, in these, in these statements of work, there's going to be an assumptions provision. And the assumptions that the vendor puts in there is that, you know, it's all, you're primarily responsible for the implementation of the software. The customer is not the vendor. And if you don't meet, you know, this laundry list of vague requirements, then they're, they're basically off the hook. They've washed their hands of, of their entire responsibility for successfully implementing the software. And that's just not right. And, and that's, that's got to be modified and negotiated. And there's got to be some parity. I think, I think there's, some, there, there's some truth to the fact that I think you said it today that this is your implementation and you need to be responsible for it. But you're also paying hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to you know, a consulting firm to do this for you, and you're paying them for something, right? And oftentimes these statements of work don't really represent that. And they say, you know, they shift the whole burden of the transaction over to the customer. And you know, they, they can avoid con, you know, their legitimate contractual obligations pretty easily by just pointing to something that you didn't do. You know? And that's, for me, that's the way to mitigate the risk. Because I think the most important document in this most important piece of it, which is the consulting agreement, is the statement of work. Yeah. Right. And then what about some of the other nuances of um, things like resourcing or the right to reject resources or the right to, um, you know, 
reject deliverables or, you know, what are some of the other, maybe the non-monetary, non things that aren't directly related to money, but they ultimately do affect money longer term. But what are, what are some of those other nuances you might recommend you, you sort of think about yeah. as you negotiate? Yeah, well, all of that should really be at least thought about. It may not be applicable to every every uh, engagement, you know, and and but but exactly what you said. I mean, you've, you've got to have the ability to pre-approve and certainly reject consultants, right, that, that aren't performing to your expectations. There's going to be some kind of caveat that the vendor is going to want to say, okay, well, if you're if you're rejecting consultants, you have to understand that that could impact the timeline. And I think that's a, a reasonable, you know, you, you know uh, ask by by the vendor. Certainly, you're going to want to have the ability to, you know, specifically identify what kinds of deliverables are going to be provided, what they're going to do, and what kind of specifications they're going to conform with. And fundamentally, I mean, you, you have to understand in the contract what exactly um, the consequences are of it not conforming to those specifications is, okay? So usually you have what we call acceptance testing language in the agreement, and whether that's in the SOW or the MSA really depends, and it's not particularly material for our, our, our conversation here, but it's gotta be in there somewhere. And you know, usually we've got kind of a three bites at the apple approach with this is you deliver, I've got a certain period of time within which to evaluate it and to make sure that it actually conforms you know, materially or substantially with the agreed upon specs. If it doesn't, then you take it back, you re-deliver it, and if it doesn't work the third time, something has to happen, right? And that something can be, you know, I terminate the whole agreement, I get a refund, um, you give me a refund for that portion of the services that are associated with this deliverable that's not conforming. You know, you, you've got to have that kind of mechanism in the contract to be able to control the process. Yeah, that's that's good stuff. Well, that's a, that's a great place to leave it as far as, uh, you know, not just the software side of it, but on the implementation side where those things to be thinking about. And um, I think, you know, summarize some of the things you've said is, you know, the, the more due diligence you do up front, the more you get this part right, the, the more money and time and heartache you're going to save later on for sure. Yeah, Absolutely. Great. Well, I, I appreciate you being on the show here today, Marcus. It was a really good conversation, and we got into a, a lot of different stuff. I know we could spend hours talking about this, but uh, we'll, we'll kind of leave it at that for now and pick up the next time you're on the show. So we'll, we'll definitely have to have you on again soon. So thanks for being here. Yeah, sounds good. Look forward to it. I appreciate the time. You bet. Thanks, Marcus. And thanks, everyone, for listening today. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Transformation Ground Control. Be sure to check us out every uh, new episodes every Wednesday morning, U.S. time. So you can find us on YouTube. You can also find us on Spotify, Pandora, Google, Apple, all the usual podcast platforms. So be sure to check us out, subscribe, share this content with others, and uh, hope you all have a great day. And we'll see you on the next episode of Transformation Ground Control.